welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and it looks like this week I may in fact be God's lonely man. Very nice. Uh, kicking off our season of Scorsese, uh, which we've been threatening to do uh, for the past year, I think, roughly, looking at the films of Martin Scorsese on the IMDb's top 250 movies, um, we are going to be discussing Taxi Driver this week. It appears I may be flying solo this week in terms of, of kind of my co-host Andrew. He is not available at the moment. Uh, but that's okay because we've assembled a wonderful panel for this discussion. First of all, uh, because we're covering a season of Scorsese films and because I know that he is a huge Scorsese fan and a Scorsese expert, the fantastic Jay Coyle has agreed to join us for the entirety of this season. He'll be joining us as co-pilot and co-host for the rest of these episodes. So thank you very much, Jay. How are you? Fantastic. <laughs> This is really co-hosting by fire. I like this. It's... Yeah, that, I yeah, we'll we'll use co-host as a kind of technical term for it. I think a catch-all. Um, yeah, and and we've also got two fantastic guests lined up for this discussion of Taxi Driver in particular, which is the earliest Scorsese film on the list. We're going to be running through them all chronologically. So we're going to cover his collaborations with De Niro. First of all, this obviously, then Raging Bull, then Goodfellas, and then Casino. And then we're going to go and do his later films after that as well. But for the discussion of Taxi Driver, which is his earliest film to have made the 250, we have two spectacular guests lined up. First of all, we have the wonderful Renuk McGregor. How are you, Renuk? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And the fantastic Alex Towers. How are you, Alex? Not too bad. Happy to continue my <laughs> trend of talking about incel films on your podcast exclusively. <laughs> it, it really is. I think the last time we had Alex on solo on this podcast, i.e. not part of a crossover with When Irish Eyes Are Watching, was to uh, celebrate Fight Club. And before that, it was also to celebrate The Matrix. I'm going to be so on I mean... a list or something. Yeah. <laughs> too late for that, Alex. You already yeah. are. Uh, Sadly, he was not available when we were talking about Joker, um, but that's that's a shame. Oof. That's a story <laughs> for another time. Um, but what we're going to do, because we're celebrating the films of Scorsese, because for the next couple of weeks we're going to immerse ourselves in Scorsese and his movies, we thought what we'd ask our guests maybe kind of a particular set of questions to get us started here. So, Renuk, if you want to go first, do you remember your kind of your general experience of Scorsese, maybe your first time seeing a Scorsese movie and your, your general impressions. Is he one of your favorite filmmakers? And if he is, what is it you love about him? You know, it's funny because when I started to explore movies quite young, I'm definitely too young for a lot of Scorsese films. I think I saw Taxi Driver at the age of 12, which looking back on it and I was really creepy because you're the age of Iris when you were watching a film <laughs> um that had all of that subject matter and then being very just kind of you know just just quite involving and intriguing the whole new york underbelly i can't really remember what scorsese film came first it probably was goodfellas because that was what your parents were watching at a certain time um yeah, I, I think it was goodfellas um and probably around the same time and then quickly every single Scorsese film I could get in the Dundalk video store was very, very quickly devoured after that between the ages of 12 and 14. So as you start to grow up and realize that you want to be a filmmaker, you attribute that to your experiences of watching Scorsese films at a very early age. And when you grow up, your tastes mature, you discover other filmmakers that would remain your more so your favorite filmmaker. It's kind of, 
it's hard. It's, if you feel like you're just cheating by saying Scorsese is one of your favorite filmmakers because you're just like, yeah, well, obviously, like it's somebody who has defined what that language is so particularly that you're kind of like, well, just, you know, say someone a little bit more niche to sound cool. But yeah, Scorsese is one of your fil favorite filmmakers. You can't deny the influence that he's had on on filmmakers today, on the experience of any filmmaker who's grown up watching movies and realized they want to be a filmmaker, it's it's absolutely unequivocally, yes, he is one of my favorite filmmakers. And I was going to say, actually, because I think what's interesting is now on the 250 up until this point, we've covered other kind of niche filmmakers, other, sorry, other kind of auteur filmmakers, people like, say, Kubrick films. We've covered films like, say, Spielberg films, Hitchcock films, those kind of directors who are perhaps highly represented on the list i think what's interesting about scorsese films is that talking to people just casually about it is that they seem to be well you might have watched say a lucas film or a spielberg film when you were too too young to realize that the name in front of the credits was particularly important a lot of people's first experience of scorsese was that he was perhaps their first auteur in inverted commas would that have been the case um i mean i think Kubrick probably got in there first. <laughs> I think, I don't know, I think you, the way I kind of devoured films was by, you know, I think you, you, um, you saw the name in front of the film and then you wanted to see the other films that had the, that kind of stamp and that mystique of following a narrative through their films. So I, I can't really, I don't really know really. I think um, it was, um, you know, you would hear people talk about those filmmakers and you would read books and see pictures of who they were. And, and that would sort of add to the mystique of wanting to experience who they were. It was like, who were these you know, pretty much all men who were at the helm of absolutely everything. And that became a draw to watch their films. Absolutely. Especially Hitchcock, because it was just so hard to deny who that person was looked like and and, and their influence you just like I have to see everything that he's done well, literally the silhouette of Hitchcock as well which is very much exactly the it's like brand. that whole mystique of like the director behind yeah. the camera in the chair yeah uh, and Alex what about yourself do you remember your first time watching a Scorsese movie would he be one of your favorite filmmakers and and if you had to pick one of his films as your favorite what would it be um no absolutely I I for me it was it's actually a very very similar story I um I think I saw Goodfellas first, and I think that's a wonderful introduction because it is, in a way, about a child being seduced into like the mafia, and then, and it's so glamorous and fun and everything. And and the same way, I think I saw this and was like, and saw Goodfellas and was like, oh my god, like I didn't realize there could be films like this, and and promptly started tracking down every one of them. And I, I have a distinct memory of like being thirteen and watching Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore and being like, this isn't kind of what I was led to believe about Goodfellas, um, but. You know, it's it, like and Taxi Driver was it was certainly um, another one that it wasn't the Don Doc video store. It was actually the Navin video store for me, although they probably didn't give it to me because I was 13. But having watched it, you know, in my parents' house and it, it kind of feeling and I talked about this about about Fight Club as well, feeling kind of illicit or something. You know, I think I recorded this off RTE and I had to like watch it in like parts where my mum went to the shop, you know, <laughs> and I don't think she would have had a huge problem with me watching, you know, Taxi Driver. I think it was more just it felt like it was a film that was on at midnight and I had to record. Um, whereas, yeah, with Scorsese, generally, he, he is an incredible filmmaker. Like he's someone who um, instead of watching Taxi Driver last night, I actually watched Silence because um, I should have watched <laughs> Taxi Driver, but I got distracted. And 
he yeah it, it just it's hard for me to actually pick a favorite I, I i probably would go back to goodfellas because that's the the first testament for everything else that came after it and, and is always going to be my sort of touchstone for that but i i he's one of those filmmakers kind of like paul schrader i think as well who's who's never boring you know even when something doesn't quite work or even when i'm a little like oh i didn't like that one as much it's, it's always fascinating or something it's always and, something personal and exactly and exactly and, and part of I, I I love hearing of how he how he talks about wanting to have made personal movies and he was at the crux of his career when he made Taxi Drivers whether he's going to make Hollywood movies or whether he was going to make personal movies that had a message and had emotions that he related to and that kind of that drive as being the the reason why he makes anything even if it's a film that you're like mm, you're still you still can't fault him for always following that instinct and and never just assuming that something's going to work he's always thinking about the audience he's always thinking about an experience that people might want to share as well and i think that's why taxi driver is, is amazing and why i think that one's probably my favorite scorsese film i think it's just the one i always come back to is like that's the most fascinating to me Right. And again, like it, it is kind of interesting that you mentioned that Scorsese stamp because even like his, you know, inverted commas work for higher movies, like the, the movies that he made to fulfill contractual obligations, like, say, for example, I think he swapped Schindler's List to make Cape Fear. I think that, you know, Casino happened because he had an option at Universal, for example. I believe he was actually drafted onto The Aviator by DiCaprio because a man had left and DiCaprio was like, who do I know who's a good director? Let me get him involved. But they all end up being kind of Scorsese films through and through, which is, is remarkable. Um, and it's something that I think you don't even see with other auteur and inverted comma directors who kind of do that kind of crossing between mainstream and kind of their own their own films as well. But actually, just in terms of kind of Taxi Driver, um, when we said we we're going to do this season, we reached out to a number of our guests and we kind of asked if you could only talk about one Scorsese film, which would it be? And I think that Renuk and, and Alex were both among the first people that we asked and therefore got in very quickly on Taxi Driver, because I think there was actually a queue forming to talk about Taxi Driver. Um <laughs> What is it about Taxi Driver? So maybe maybe Renuk first here, but what was it about Taxi Driver that made it, like when we asked, would you like to talk about a Scorsese movie? Why was Taxi Driver the first one that came to mind? Um, so I, you know, it's, it feels almost really personal, but you know, when I, like I was saying, when I was a kid being so kind of seduced by the magic of cinema, there was always something really intriguing about films that, that showed you the darker side of some underbelly, some New York world that, um, you know, not, that didn't glamorize it, but just showed a very dark side of an Americana that you have otherwise seen portrayed as, as perfect in other films. And it, and that becoming so involving and intriguing um, and that being cinematic as well of like, dingy hallways um, of late night streets of really seedy bars and um, the kind of grit and grime of that city is just so alluring in a really, really weird way. And, you know, from there kind of springboarding into Paul Schrader and I remember having bought a book of Paul Schrader scripts when I was 15 and re like the spine was completely worn out by the time it, I, you know, by the time it actually broke and it couldn't even read it anymore because I had absolutely hoovered and absorbed all of those screenplays. I think it was like Light Sleeper, American Gigolo and Taxi Driver. And, 
feeling really compelled from then on in to want to seek out stories of um, anti-heroes and people that were not necessarily good, but you could show a point of view and empathize with a character that you might otherwise disregard and that it was the filmmaker's duty to want to challenge a an audience to an experience and a person that they might otherwise disregard and that they could recognize those instincts in, in themselves as well. So that's kind of what Taxi Driver has, has been for me growing up and I think identifying with that angst as a teenager completely, but in a, obviously in a very different context, but um, that always being a compelling reason to why I'd be interested in the film is who is this character and how how is the filmmaker enabling us to get inside their head and see their point of view? And and that's just something that it it um, it completely nailed in the 70s and I think hasn't there hasn't really been a film that's been as sharp as that since. And it still remains relevant, which I think is so special about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, for the films like, you know, 30th, 40th and, you know, even 20th anniversary, you had articles that I've, I've read that are very much like Taxi Driver. It's actually more relevant now than when it was first released. <laughs> and I think perhaps the strangest article I've read is that Travis Bickle is more of a style icon now. Uh, than he was in 1976, which is certainly... But that red velvet jacket, like, is, I, uh, is iconic. I swear to yeah. God, I, I was watching it with my boyfriend yesterday, and when he goes in to ask um, Betsy out, he's wearing the, 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 the corduroy trousers, the corduroy jacket, and the check shirt, and I swear to God, I looked at him and went, you wear that sick all the time. <laughs> and it's like, that from behind us he was walking in like that literally could be you like the, the, the kind of flare jeans the kind of 70s that i was like Vino. my boyfriend wears travis pickle clothes <laughs> what a realization i know it's like shit. <laughs> to be fair it's probably better than realizing that you wear travis pickle clothes i suppose yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> But it's, I think actually what you got out there is kind of interesting. We're probably going to talk about it more kind of when we get into the movie in more depth. But it is interesting. I think Schrader himself has said that like with Taxi Driver, what he wanted to do with Bickle was to allow the audience to understand him but not tolerate him. Yeah. Which is a remarkable kind of piece of cinema. I think it's something Scorsese does throughout his career where he gives you these people who are not likable in any real sense, but who you understand and come to very subjectively see the world through their view again a lot of the, the movie a lot of this movie is told from travis's point of view often literally as well which is kind of bold and uncomfortable and yeah we'll, we'll talk about that more in a, in a moment i think but alex what about yourself what was it about taxi driver that made you go that's the scorsese movie i want to talk about it fits neatly um, in my kind of like 250 niche of fight club and the matrix <laughs> well actually I'd, I'd say that's part of the reason oh hey i think uh oh, just joined. all right all right, so listeners, just to let you know, Andrew has joined the podcast. Um, hello, Andrew. How are you? Oh, is this live? <laughs> yes, this is live. We're already recording. Um, perfect. The, the perils of podcasting remotely. Sorry, um, Alex, sorry for cutting you off. Yes. You were saying no, no worries. Taxi driver. Um, no, I, I think you're, the, the reason I kind of picked this was kind of what I'd hoped to have said on the, like, I think with Fight Club and The Matrix when I was talking about them, I hope I kind of set them in the context of these were films I thought were great when I was 12, but they do have a lot of like dangerous, dark stuff in them. Um, and kind of for the same reason I, I picked Taxi Driver, I, I feel like if I'd, I'd made a play for something like Goodfellas or, you know, I, I'd just be sort of waxing lyrical for two hours being like, no, this film is perfect. This film is perfect. Whereas I kind of thought Taxi Driver would be more interesting because 
kind of like what you were saying. This is a film that's always made me deeply uncomfortable, and it's phenomenally well made. Um, and and we'll we'll get into all of that. But it's actually part of the revulsion. Like I've I've seen this film I think three times, and I would say I've seen Condon four times. You know what I mean? This is not a Scorsese film that I've gone back to a lot because it is sort of. It, it's got a lot of spite in it and it's not like a sort of spitefully made film it's kind of got a lot of hate and anger but it's kind of like what you were saying that it's um it's it's a very strange one to watch because I think when I watched it when I was you know 13 or whatever and going through the Scorsese filmography I didn't probably understand a lot of it and that was probably a good thing at that time I was probably sort of like oh great he rescued that prostitute that's that's wonderful and I left him that but there is something unnerving about it and um, my my own personal experience then as well is um, I was lucky enough to go to film school very briefly as a, a teenager in New York and I didn't really understand what I was doing uh, there I hadn't really worked out whether I wanted to like sort of study film at that at that seriously but one of the things that made me realize I didn't was actually they started playing Taxi Driver in the screening room in, in, in the, the film academy and they kept pausing it to talk about the lighting or to talk about the music. And I remember being really annoyed, being like, just just play it. Like, guys, we just all watch the film. And getting more and more frustrated by all the technical things. And all these kids were, like, really into cinematography talking about. Um, and it, it's not like I, I didn't appreciate that. But it was more like I, I kind of feel that there's a huge technical appreciation for this film as well. And, and when I was watching it in that that, that um, screening room, I remember thinking like, no, no, like the, the story is what they should be focusing on here. And then they, they just didn't. And then I didn't watch it for solidly about 10 years and, and realized in that period, I accidentally, not accidentally, I, I actually worked as a, an Uber driver in New York City for a while when I was over there working and living. Again, just going about my day, probably not picking up like on any of the, you know, like this is not something maybe you should be doing based on, you know, because the taxi driver sort of has literally you start sort of said. a diary, Alex. Yeah, there were actually a bit more like a, another thing. My cousin, I remember, invited me. He's like, hey, there's a there's a gun range down on 20th Street. Do you want to go down there? And I remember just being like, yeah, OK. And I remember going down there and the guy who was like, more tattoo than man talking me through the safety instruction for the revolver I was going to like fire at a target and then he said with this like really deep enthusiasm you know they, they shot taxi driver in this gun range this is the gun range that they... and I remember thinking like I don't know if you should be proud of that man I don't know if that's something you should be telling tourists as they wander in but then spent the next half an hour firing a gun at this little target beside um, two Orthodox Jews who had these like enormous like revolvers and just sort of, again, thinking like, oh, yeah, I must, must give Taxi Driver a watch again. <laughs> so a few years ago in the Stella, they were showing it and I went along and like, a midnight screening, much like the films Travis ends up going to. And I watched it again as much older and thought like, yeah, this is a very dark and scary film. And it's it's extremely well made because it like puts it's like trapping a nerve under your finger or something it kind of like focuses on it and like keeps pressing on it and and for that reason it's it's not my favorite Scorsese film um I'm sure we'll get into all the reasons why it's it's sort of dark and troubling and and there are definitely parts of it that that feel so nihilistic um that I don't know if it can be sort of enjoyed in the way in some of his other films can but that I kind of thought it would be the one I wanted to talk about just because it it is one that definitely requires talking about 
Mm, absolutely. Again, it's one of the movies that has kind of aged remarkably well. It's, again, a discussion that we had last year over, say, Joker, for example, which is still very much kind of framed in terms of, uh, you know, Taxi Driver. Things like incels, things like the alt-right racism in America, there's a lot to kind of unpack here. That's kind of interesting how much Taxi Driver is of its time but also, you know, kind of timeless as a result, in that it's very much a movie of the post-Watergate era. I think it's been pointed out that, like, during the production and filming of Taxi Driver, you had, like, in quick succession, the fall of Saigon. You had two separate assassination attempts on Jared Ford, one by, uh, was it uh, Squeaky From of the Manson Girls, um, and another, um, obviously, by uh, Sarah Jane Moore as well. You had Ford refusing to allow, like, federal assistance to New York City, the famous headline, which he didn't actually say, but the drop dead um, headline as well. And you had all of this kind of happening in the background while the film is going there. And it has this kind of, it, it percolates, it kind of almost pickles itself in that ambience and mood. But then you watch it today and it, it, it feels relevant in arguably the same ways fundamentally in that, you know, the way that it's about men and about race and about the way that men look at, white men in particular, look at people who are different from them. So people of color and women in particular, but also that it, it taps into that rage and the sense in which whether that rage is always there and always has been there or whether it's slightly different now as it was to then it's it's a very 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 disturbing movie i think alex mentioned there like he's watched kundan more than this we're gonna probably talk about this i think on on tax on the scorsese kind of podcast a bit i know from talking to andrew actually and i do feel i apologize i feel like i should apologize to andrew as we kick off the season of scorsese because uh, i kind of suspect I, I i think I think I think you would apologize to me anyway, Darren. I think I I I I, I don't think you need to apologize to me. I, I I think I think I know what you're going to say, um, but let let's just like add up all of my apologies to you, <laughs> like, like subtract them away, and then you 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 can you you can feel in credits. You can um, you can you can actually like proactively do bad things to me now <laughs> and 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 not have to say sorry. Um, but no, no, because I I, I I kind of zoned in on the, the Scorsese. Doing the Scorsese season was something that I wanted to do because we hadn't done any Scorsese films before The Irishman. I thought it'd be nice to kind of blitz through them all in a linear fashion. And I think that in conversation yeah. with Andrew, after I came up with that idea, it became very clear that Andrew is not necessarily a huge fan of Scorsese as a director after I had organized and orchestrated this. So I'm subjecting Andrew to like eight weeks of kind of slow, gradual torture. Um, as we talk I'm about fine, Darren. I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> Entirely yeah. unintentionally, I should be clear. But I think yeah. not not to jump ahead to discussions that we're going to have in the coming weeks, I just know from conversations I've had with Andrew off mic is that like one of the things about Scorsese movies that I think you don't like, and I'm probably generalizing here, so feel free to stop me or we can have the conversation later, but is the sense in which they're grimy and uncomfortably feature people who are fundamentally unlikable and kind of just immerse the viewer in a world of kind of scum and kind of disgustingness. And kind of it, they feel like you want to take a shower afterwards. And I know that when we've had discussions about films before, particular films, and we're going to talk about them later in the season, so I won't name them. I've generally been like, yeah, but, you know, I mean, on the other hand, it, you know, I, I can watch these movies and I don't feel that uncomfortable. The thing about Taxi Driver is no matter how many times I watch it, and it doesn't happen with any other later Scorsese movie, even Bringing Out the Dead, even Goodfellas, even Wolf of Wall Street, um, even King of Comedy. But when I watch Taxi Driver, I feel dirty. I feel uncomfortable. I squirm in my seat. And it's a really unsettling and really disturbing watch for me. And it's kind of interesting that kind of Alex mentions that because it's an interesting one to start with, I think. 
But uh, anyway, very quickly then, before we jump into the spoiler zone, three questions to get us started. Um, so maybe, Alex, if you want to start first. Do you think The Taxi Driver belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, yes, I, I probably do. The only the only thing I'd sort of say is it, it does depend on what other Scorsese films are on that list. Because I, um, going back to a point that we said earlier, I, I think this is like the the perfect encapsulation of a sort of very successful, very iconic Scorsese film that is this balance between a sort of movie that's colorful and has this incredible score and these incredible actors, uh, while at the same time being this sort of immensely personal, very dark, very sort of like um, driven by a lot of personal feelings and, and, and things like that. So I, I do I would say it is if if you know, it's not necessarily a film as we've already talked about that you're going to want to watch all the time. But in terms of the inception for a whole type of American movie and in in terms of um, the cultural influence it's had, in terms of the, especially, like you kind of mentioned earlier, um, you know, the, the trilogy or the, the trip arc of, of Lucas and Spielberg and Scorsese in the 1970s and the whole kid stays in the picture era. This is this is probably the most sort of I'd argue like it's the most uncomfortable. It's the most upsetting. It's the most sort of challenging film from that era. It's you know and it, for all those reasons, yes, absolutely, I think it should be on the list. I would just sort of be curious to see what other Scorsese films are on the list. Okay, very very quickly. So it is this. It is Raging Bull. It is Goodfellas. It is Casino. Then we jump forward in time. It is The Departed. It is Shutter Island, and it is. Um... One other DiCaprio and Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, I mean, I there's a few there that I, I kind of think this is much better than. So for Take those that reasons, the Departed. Um, um, yeah, no, it's that that would be the Departed. That would be one of them. <laughs> uh, not that the Departed's bad. It's just you know, it's a bit of a, a cartoon. Um, whereas, yeah, definitely, if you're gonna like I, this, like Scorsese deserves to be on that list, and this is like sort of the the very typical Scorsese film. So for those reasons, absolutely. Um, and it's worth mentioning there, you actually mentioned the kind of the movie brats and the idea of kind of, you know, the kids say in the picture era. And what's interesting about Taxi Driver is that it feels very much like the culmination of kind of that era rather than kind of a yeah. early tailblazer. Because it was, it was released, I think, between Jaws and Star Wars. So like when Spielberg and Lucas were going to like re-gear American cinema towards kind of big summer blockbusters and towards kind of easier films. And again, it's ironic, I think, that like Scorsese... After this, he did New York, New York. And I think New York, New York was the moment that Scorsese realized he was never going to be Steven Spielberg or George Lucas. He was never going to be the guy who was given, you know, 100 or $200 million budgets to make whatever he wanted and be praised by critics and to have audiences kind of turn out. It's kind of interesting that... I'm pretty sure he just got $200 million for his, like, crazy new <laughs> killer of this. So it just took him 40 years, but... <laughs> 40 years and the, the death of cinemas. Yeah, sorry, yeah. got the guts of it for Gangs of New York as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, so it is It is kind of interesting in, in that respect as well. And again, the fact that I think that Scorsese had to fight to make this as well, because obviously this was written by Paul Schrader. I think he wrote it somewhere around 1972. Um, he had left his wife um, and then the woman for whom he left his wife left him. He was living, <laughs> he was living in her apartment by himself, basically, living a life not too different from that of Travis Bickle, as he's kind of described it himself. So he basically came up with the idea of this as an exorcism. He wrote Taxi Driver, I think, in he said 10 to 15 days, basically, and just kind of poured it all out of himself. Originally, Brian De Palma uh, wanted to direct it. Um, and it's kind of interesting that Scorsese... 
um, eventually came around to wanting to direct it, but they said that they didn't want him to in large part because they looked at, say, films like, I think it was Boxcar Bertha, where people said, no, 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 you're an exploitation director. You can't make this movie. Um, and it wasn't until he made Mean Streets that he actually got the go ahead to kind of to, to make this. And it's kind of interesting that it took so long. It does feel almost like the end of that movie brat era, if that makes sense. You know, because after this, I think you have, you know, you have the kind of collapse and implosion. You have the kind of coming up after this you have Sorcerer from William Friedkin, for example. A couple of years after that, you'll have Heaven's Gate. The sense that this is very much the end or the culmination of a certain kind of Hollywood picture, uh, which is remarkable, I think. Um, all right, and Renok, what about yourself? Do you think the Taxi Driver belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yes. Um, I think because its cultural influence is, um, is, is, is so apparent, I think, in, in the fact that it's, it's a film about a hero that, you again, you can understand, but you can't condone. It's a portrait of America at that time. It's about New York and the anger that it had at that time and the problems that it had. Um, it's a piece of history in that sense by just really, really finding the, the mood of what America was like at that at uh, in 19 in the early 1970s or mid 1970s. But it it also just popularized the um the idea of a, of a film that you were going to feel incredibly uncomfortable watching and you know i think they they didn't really understand when they were making this that this was going to be a film that people were actually going to go see and it was going to win all these awards and it was going to win the palm d'Or. it was a film that came from a very personal place it was incredibly uncomfortable to watch but yet it was successful in you know whatever that means it's it's the the idea of popularizing a film that makes people uncomfortable because it speaks directly to an audience and I, I think that's exactly why it deserves its place in history it will continue to be relevant it will continue to to cause you to um ask questions about the world you're currently living in and not just about its snapshot of the 1970s so yeah it absolutely does um, you mentioned there actually the awards that it got. It's notable it did get a Best Picture nomination. Scorsese didn't get a Best Director nomination. He did win the Palme d'Or, and I think it was Tennessee Williams was head of the jury and apparently vigorously opposed the idea of Scorsese <laughs> winning a Palme d'Or for this. I believe um, Scorsese's also said in hindsight that he wants to thank the French for giving him the Palme d'Or because it allowed him to truly fail to the maximum capacity of his ability in the years that followed. It really gave him the chance to fail, uh, which is quite remarkable as well. But yeah, it, it is it is very much kind of striking uh, in that sense. And Jay, what about yourself? Do you think The Taxi Driver is one of the best 250 movies ever made? I mean, it's, it's, it's a consistent kind of... Um film at the top of Scorsese's uh, filmography for a lot, a lot of people, and myself included. So in that regard, I guess it does. I would echo what Alex Would this be your favorite Scorsese film? It wouldn't. Um, okay. I'd, I'd have a, a couple ahead of it, at least, I think. But similarly to what they mentioned, it's 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 a really disturbing film. In, and it, I don't know how everybody else feels about it in this regard, but I find as I get older and I watch it, I find it even more disturbing for various yeah. reasons. I, I think... There's a dorm room poster philosophy of it for when you're a teenager kind of thing. And I think that does exist because you don't really understand it. And, and similarly to what Alex is saying in his Incel trilogy, Fight Club had that as well. Um, you know, that these posters represent a certain kind of viewpoint 
at a yeah, certain like Scarface, time. like, like yeah, a Scarface, Scar- exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's the that kind of thing, and I think Taxi Driver, fairly or unfairly, is lumped in with that uh, thing. But I think in a healthy brain or a healthy mind or a relatively healthy mind, your experience and your experience with the film would and should change as as you see it at different points in your life. And I find it have much of this morning with a spectacular hangover very early. Um, with the as Scorsese closed, intended. The sun, as Scorsese intended, I found myself <laughs> horrified by it and, and really impressed that I could be hor- still horrified by it in, in various ways. It's like a film from 1976 in this way and it, like with the reputation it has, it's not, it's not quote-unquote trash or, you know, exploitation in the yeah. traditional sense that would offend you. Like say something like Tax Tax Chainsaw Massacre for the Era, yeah. which has a kind of grubby but cameo. It has a cameo here, by, yeah. by the way. Has a little yes, it does indeed. Yeah, on the cinema. Uh, but this is one of these prestige films, I guess, for want of a better word, in terms of award winning, in terms of a famous director, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it still horrifies in ways that yeah. I'm really impressed by. Um, but it's worth noting that like the studio didn't consider it an awards winner when it came out. They they oh, complained no, no, quite no, a no. bit. Yeah, yeah. The it's studio watching no, thought it was exploitation. Yeah. To talk to Alex's point about the kids' safety picture, William Goldman, nobody knows anything in that area. You yeah. know, Robert Evans knew it, William Goldman knew it, but nobody knows what's going to. Nobody would have guessed that Wolf Wall Street, a three hour film, would have made a fortune at the cinema. Would become the, the Christmas blockbuster of 2013. Exactly. Yeah. It's mad. Like, so whether anything can. Nobody knows what's going to be successful, really, except Marvel films. That's their only <laughs> guarantee. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we're just waiting for Marty's think, Marvel film. Um, I could you imagine? Um, I hope Nicolas Cage stars in it. Um, he, should, he should do it if he has any balls at all. He is. Like, put up a shut up, Marty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, I think it does. Like, I think it does belong there. I think even even not. And I'm not sure anybody like you call yourself a massive fan of it in lots of ways. But even people, I think that understand that it's got got something. Even if you don't like it, it's it, there's a lot to it here, and it, and it stands up because of that. Yeah, I think the trader made a $20 bet with the head of Peora Columbia about whether or not like this would actually perform well. Um, and he said that like he was he was astounded because the, when they started screening it in New York, um, Schrader apparently walked outside and was really disappointed because he saw that there were people kind of lining up outside. And he's like, well, they're just showing up late for the movie. It's like, no, no, no. They're for the next screening in two hours. Um, and apparently it was just it was insane. Um, apparently it was a word of mouth. I imagine. Moment. Was, Imagine was, him giving that twenty dollars to the guy like the way Bickle does in the corridor. I was wondering the exact same thing. Like a really, really dirty, like the dirtiest twenty dollars you ever did so. Uh, yeah. Why is Congratulations it on your success, Mr. Schrader. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Um, we didn't ask actually about the first time you saw Taxi Driver, but do you think that Taxi Driver is one of the best 250 movies? Uh, no, I I think there there's if you're going to have Scorsese movies, there's better Scorsese movies to have on the list. I guess the Scorsese fans want as many of them as as possible. I guess, but I think there's probably Scorsese movies that aren't on the list that could be. Um, but like obvious ones, obviously Raging Bull and Goodfellas would be better, I think. Um, and in terms of movies in this sort of wheelhouse that aren't Scorsese movies, I think that the likes of Scarface and Fight Club are better as well. Um, Ooh. <laughs> Oof. So, <laughs> She'll fill the room. Yeah, I mean... 
co-host yeah, fight. The, the, <laughs> the, I mean, the, do, do you know what? Actually, Fight Club doesn't upset me that much. But Scarface really does. But it's also... It, it also is it because kind of... there's more food waste in Scarface? <laughs> <laughs> that mountain of cocaine isn't going to snort itself. It's just a really gross movie. And it's also really tense, like, at times. You're kind of... Um, um, but they, they... Don't get me wrong. Like, like, Taxi Driver was a terrible watch. Um, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, and I wouldn't... <laughs> I would not choose to watch it, I guess. Um, <laughs> Unless Darren had signed me up for an eight-week intensive Martin Scorsese binge. <laughs> exactly. I'm, like, if you're... If... if, if, if I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't put it on the list. No, because I think there's other movies by Scorsese that are better. Um, including ones that aren't maybe on the list, possibly. Mm-hmm. And um, I also think that, um, that there are other movies kind of like this, if this is what you're kind of like going for, um, that, that might scratch that itch. Um, it's difficult, though, because it, it, it is good. But, but no, I, 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 I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I would. You, 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 there might be an argument for putting it on just because of how important it is. Um, it's kind of cultural footprint, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Alex, what about yourself? Would this be in your top two hundred and fifty movies of all time? Would this be among your own personal favorites? No, I, I don't think it would. Just uh, kind of going back to like Jay's point there, um, just about how fundamentally disturbing or something this is, and and not a film I have ever enjoyed watching at any point in my life. So for that reason, I don't think it would be in my 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 personal uh, 250 i it's hard to imagine a like another scorsese film though that you know that i i'd if if it were between this and something else like silence might be in my top 250 i love that film i watched it last night i have it on dvd but that's not to say that i i think it is a better film if you know what i mean than taxi driver it's just a film that i personally find a lot more interesting and maybe that's the time in my life um, and, and kind of what um, has already been talked about, about how this is a film that it, it's incredible in that it remains disturbing, I think, so for long after it was made, but also that um, it, it, it's probably disturbing in a different way as you get older. And, and like, I recently watched um, A Clockwork Orange, another film I had no interest in watching since I watched it as a teenager and I watched it again. And it, that that film is it's still very um kind of purposely repulsive but it feels in it, repulsive in a way that's sort of very in the context of the 1970s when it came out whereas taxi driver you know at the end of it when he's shooting those guys i remember thinking like god he's you know this is the kind exactly the kind of thing we're still seeing in headlines when somebody yeah. you know shoots a bunch of people and we're all just waiting for the manifesto to yeah. come out to say that like he's you know um angry at women or angry at a particular minority or angry this is at a man else. who wasn't going to take it anymore this is a exactly. man who stood up so for all those reasons, it's not in my top 250 list. If any governments are still listening to this, um, I also would like to get off the, the dangerous incel list I'm no doubt on. for being. Um, yeah, no, I, I actually, that's very close to my own sentiments as well. I wouldn't consider this to be one of my own favorite movies in large part because it is so uncomfortable to watch. I think it's necessary. I think it's very well made. I think it does exactly what it sets out to do. But it's a movie that I always feel like I need to shower after watching, which is probably 
like why it's great, but also not why I would want it on like a bookshelf where I pick it up and look at it every day. Uh, what about yourself, Rena? Would this be on your uh, personal 250 favorite movies? Um, pretty much for those exact reasons. Of, <laughs> yes, I need to. I want to take a shower after I watch it. I feel repelled. I feel repulsed. It makes me. Uh, it makes me think. God, there's some really horrible, lonely people in the world and there's a level of experience that I I I don't experience in my own life but it's it's important to see in a, a sense of cinema and a sense of understanding the human condition it absolutely is in my top five films of all time it is wow. so um it is so influential to me as a storyteller as you know, if there is a film that can pinpoint my exact taste, um, you know, other than David Lynch, it would be this film. It, it is it is probably the most the singular, most influential film on me as I was growing up watching cinema and being so compelled by characters that were repulsive and that you didn't want to you didn't want to condone them, but you could understand them and about the underworld, the dark side of the world that is important to make cinema about, to make people, um, to, to the importance of sharing a point of view that makes people aware of the world around them. Um, and I think it was this film and a film from a few years earlier, um, Alan Pakula's Kloosh, that kind of, that stands for me as a kind of a double, double feature. And it's kind of an interesting, um, Clute is the one starring Jane Fonda. She won her Oscar for it, right? If I remember yes, correctly. Yeah. Donald yeah. Sutherland. Yeah, yeah. In a very similar way, it it, you know, a few years before, it kind of um, and then maybe Midnight Cowboy a few years before as well. It 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 showed a side of New York that was not glamorous, that wasn't the kind of Frank Sinatra, you know, beautiful, big, luscious, uh, high society kind of New York. It was this really horrible cigarette encrusted you know semen stained nasty new york and i think it's it just left such an impression on the kind of world that you could find cinematic to me and i've always come back to it as a reference for other films and other ideas for characters that i want to write because i think i'm just compelled by people who are disturbed locked inside their own heads and creating their own mythologies, struggling with whatever demons are within them and, and how loneliness is such a um, contributing factor to all of it. It's the, you know, and, and in a way, it, the film doesn't necessarily have this kind of, you know, main narrative tension of somebody wants something very badly and has a uh, has problem getting it. It's it's the, the question of what do you do with all the loneliness is sort of the underlying narrative tension with all of it. And I find that so compelling because off the back of that, you can really create these incredibly con complex characters. And I just always come back to Taxi Driver as, you know, the number one reference in which that was so effectively done. And yeah, no, everything about it is just, <laughs> it's just my kind of movie. 
Yeah. It's interesting, actually. We'll probably come back to it again in the spoiler zone, but one of the things that I think uh, Paul Schrader said about it, which I find fascinating, is the idea that obviously he was heavily influenced by European cinema. I think obviously like uh, Bresson's Pickpocket was a huge influence on kind of various scenes in it. But he's talked about how, for him, a large part of what made Travis Pickle interesting, outside of the fact that he's described as an exorcism of the worst parts of himself, is that he's argued that Bickle is a European kind of like Goddard-esque protagonist. Um, He's kind of stuck in this sense of existential ennui. How do I fit in this world? Where do I belong? How do I get what I want there? But because he's been translated from Europe to America, and I feel like Schrader gets to say this because he's an American, um, but he doesn't know... He doesn't know how to articulate the questions that he wants. Like, he doesn't know how to say what he wants, let alone identify what he wants. And so much of the movie is based around Bickle's, like, inarticulateness, his inability to actually express this yearning that you as an audience member can clearly see that he has. Like, there's a great moment when he's talking to uh, Peter Boyle as wizard, and he's like, I just, I, 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 you know... I don't know what where Boyle tries to offer this like really weird feel good kind of like morale boosting pull yourself together life is meaningless but you know everybody has their own destiny and you'll find out where you're meant to be except it devolves into one guy is a doctor and another guy's a lawyer and one guy lives over there and it's like you get what I'm saying right but there's this wonderful moment where like between the two of them it's like I I don't know how to say what I'm feeling and I think that there is something kind of fascinating in that this idea well, of he's- He's no Bertrand Russell. No, he's, yeah. he's a no. taxi driver. What do you expect of him? Um, but I, I think there is something kind of interesting in that, in the idea of kind of like, as a protagonist, as a central character, having somebody who can't have that arc that Rena suggested there, which is the, I want something and here's how I get it, because they lack the ability to even articulate what they want, let alone identify it, you know? Uh, which is kind of like, again, really unsettling and really depressing. Um, but what about yourself, Jay? Do you think that it belongs? Uh, would it be on your own personal two hundred? I think it would be actually. Um, it's yeah, for the same reasons I outlined that I think it is in the would it be in the top two hundred and fifty in a list? If anybody has an arbitrary list, they know of. Well, um, I think it does. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, no, I think it would. I think it's it's similarly to I would watch Scorsese films when I was very young, and it's a film that it's always kind of haunted me and being part of. It kind of gets the touchstone for certain films and filmmakers, and I think it, I think it stands up really well, even whilst you can point out problems with it or point out issues, but it's it's a film that it's rigorous in its approach and really really well made, and there's there's very precious little flab on it. It's it's yeah. really striking. I'd actually forgotten that it's less than two hours long. When I went to watch this one, thinking to myself, it's about two hours twenty, like every film is. Like, and I was listening, and two hours. It's actually quite lean for what it gets into, and and the amount of work that goes into it. It there's an artistry in the yeah. both filmmaking and the writing, and the and the acting and what the Nero brings to it, in particular. Um, I yeah, I think there's everybody is on fire here in terms. Of, it, 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 there's a kind of symbiotic kind of relationship between the kind of three points. I think. And it creates something kind of unforgettable, I think, even yeah. even whilst being simultaneously repulsed by most a lot of it. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think it does. It's a film I think I'll be still watching twenty or thirty years from now, if, I'm, if so, somehow still alive. Um, so we, yeah, and definitely. finding new things, whether those oh, things like, be depressing or otherwise. Just in terms of what Rena was saying about uh, kind of the gritty New York films, I think one worth mentioning that doesn't really get enough is uh, Elaine May's Mikey and Nikki, which is, has a very 70s gritty new york and kind of similar time as taxi driver came out and it's kind of dark and hellish in lots of similar ways and uh, we're checking out if, if you haven't seen it 
Um, and actually just kind of very quickly kind of building off that there and in kind of what you said about this idea of, um, and I've completely forgotten what I was going to say. So Andrew. Um, Excellent. I, I know. I always love it when that happens. Uh, Me Andrew, too. Um, what about yourself? Uh, would you, um, would you consider this to be one of your own personal 250 favorite movies ever? Um, no. Um, no, I, I, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting kind of a look at loneliness and, and, uh, and the way it feels to be alone, like re- really feeling like there is nobody in this world. And then the, the people you can see kind of like, um, have people and you're not a part of that. They have their own kind of, um, it, and it, it it's, I mean, it, it's a good, it's a good, it's, 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 it's a good movie for a certain, I mean, it's, it's perhaps a bad movie for a certain person at a certain time to kind of, uh, uh, relate to because it will probably make them feel worse. But for me right now, no, it, it's not, um, it's not on my, um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be on my own list. There's a lot of, there's a lot of really weird eating in the movie. <laughs> that, um, there's like like there's apple pie with melted yellow cheese blue cheese and pie thing yeah thank you. i really want to try that i tried it out after taxi driver because i was like what is that and it's like this, this doesn't work no this no got them that's it that is a thing they have over there though isn't it <laughs> Cheese and pie, yeah. Yeah, well, this and is it, the real horror of Taxi Driver. So. Yeah, and he says like immediately, "I thought that was a pretty good choice." <laughs> I think he was lying to himself, though. I, 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 uh, I, I, yeah. I, I think the main point is that he has absolutely no taste. I don't think that we're meant to take him at his word yeah. that actually this is a, a recommendation. Yeah. Got take one thing. He's, he's got to pivot to a Bon Appetit career. Yeah. Uh, it's like. <laughs> Why would you take me to that apple pie with melted yellow cheese place? Why would you think I like that? It's like, I don't know. I don't know much about pies. I don't know much about food. Uh, lots of couples eat it. Um, yeah, all kinds lots of couples. Of couples. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, and, and even with, like, Jodie Foster, the way she eats that jam sandwich. With sugar like on she, it. Yeah, she puts it on with a spoon, like, first of all, kind of awkwardly, and then, like, pours sugar on it. And then and then eats it like with the with the bread standing up like, like I thought rather, that was kind of to emphasize horizontally. I thought that was just to emphasize like oh she is a child like yeah, she does yeah. not know how to like feed herself she's Absolutely. literally combining sugar with bread. <laughs> Absolutely, and <laughs> more sugar. Yeah, um, well, well, yeah, I mean, but like Travis doesn't know how to feed himself either. You see, well, he him is also eating. a child. Yes, he yeah. is also a... yeah. It's interesting you said about the the sugar as well because. I think that they got that from Garth Avery, which is, um, you know, which is the side of the film that always really unsettles me entirely is Garth Avery is the underage prostitute that um, Schrader met on a night out, if I remember correctly. And he took that element of her from having those breakfasts with her and put that in the script. This was something that she did was eat, eat, you know, she's a sugar junkie. She was someone that ate um, jam like that as well. And I was actually researching Garth Avery to see if I could find out what, you know, what had happened to her. Apparently she she disappeared after the film and, and there's a memorial for her, whether it is her or not on Facebook. Um, 
uh, for, I think she died in 94 of, of AIDS and battled okay. heroin addiction for years as well. But she's in the film, she is the consultant for Jodie Foster and she's Jodie Foster's friend as she crosses yeah. the street. That's Garth Avery. That nice. is the real Iris, which is where a lot of those, um, those nuances and those uh, elements of Iris's character, they all come from from her. Yeah, yeah. he'd apparently met her um, at a bar and then at breakfast he called Scorsese over and they had breakfast with her and she literally ate like that. So apparently, yeah, it is is very much based on, on kind of a real thing as well. Um, and then, so final round of questions before we jump into the spoiler zone. Um, so Alex, if listeners have not seen Taxi Driver, would you recommend that they pause the podcast, pull the blinds, Maybe eat some jam with some sugar on it and watch Taxi Driver. Um, again, probably depends on on their own mental state. I would sort of caution if there could be a, because <laughs> this is one of these like you were kind of talking about, you know, the um, assassinations that were taking place around the same time. Is that this? This is a film that literally led a crazy person to to try and kill the president and, and to impress yeah. Jodie Foster, no less. Yeah. So. Um, they actually, John kind of, Hinckley's defense in that trial screened Taxi Driver for the entire jury. Um, yeah, so like I think that sort of says it all about if this is the kind of film you want That wanna... was the defense, like, by the way, like that, not the un- prosecution. Yeah. An uncut version. <laughs> and the jury didn't have to pay for <laughs> to, 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 to watch yeah. it. Yeah, wow. It was also, That's... that was the, the day before I think Scorsese went to the Oscars um, for it as well. Um, Jesus Christ. Were, they, well, they, were they able to buy concessions and stuff? Yeah, popcorn. <laughs> were they able to bring in food with them? Yeah. Um, Only jam and toast and sugar. That's yeah. <laughs> but, no, but I they think last this is longer, in... Jay. They last longer. Only what you see. Um, sorry. Sorry. I think this is an incredibly important film for all the reasons that, that have already been talked about. And yes, if you're interested in. Not even just Scorsese or American film. If you're interested in like film, if you're interested in movies, if you're interested in being like transported to um, you know this particular time and and sort of feel inexorably trapped in a room with someone or a cab with someone, this is a film that is incredible for all those reasons. Uh, we already mentioned it's like an incredible technical film, and I'm sure we'll get into like all the shots and stuff. So for a myriad of reasons, this is absolutely a film that should be watched and appreciated. Um, at the same time, it, it is it does kind of feel dangerous or something, and it does kind of feel scary. And like uh, I remember the very brief period for which I was trying to like supplement my income to pay for rent in New York and was driving uh, my uncle's car as a, an Uber driver. I remember like hating it, you know, and hating Uber, which was a terrible company. And this was right around the time they were like trying to muscle out the actual TLC, the Taxi and Limousine Commission holders, and um. At the time, just feeling like it's such a lonely job and like a horrible company like Uber makes it so much lonelier because you don't even have the like <laughs> conversations with the wizard, you know, and like the other fellow Uber drivers. You, you just have an app and you're just like clicking like, yeah, I'll bring you to Broadway. Yeah, I'll bring you there. Um, and you sort of Harlem, thinking then, well, actually, I lived I lived in yeah, East Harlem. Place. So, yeah, <laughs> lived in East Harlem at the time. And um and I remember like driving around and, and feeling like, oh, one day, like, oh, this is kind of like taxi driver. And then like three days later, kind of being like, oh, God, this is kind of like taxi driver. And then really not like that and resigned after like a month or two because it was just so it was just so disheartening. But um, it was the end of the day when you had to clean up 
like, no, there was nothing like that. I should I should qualify like I mostly just brought like people in the Upper West Side to like musicals in the evening and made like good tips and everything. It just was very like kind of worker bee kind of work. You know, you're just up and down. Yeah. Never sat in a car staring at a woman in silhouette as a man in the back seat describes what he plans to do with Magnum. No, yeah, um, exactly that. Well, literally directing your gaze. Um, actually, you see there, that there's... over there? That's Hamilton. <laughs> I've got tickets. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna watch that delightful play. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever seen what you can watch a musical from the balcony section? <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. You should see it. Uh, but um, yes, actually, it's kind of interesting there, kind of something that you mentioned. Um, well, first of all, the, the fact that apparently suicide rates are phenomenally high among taxi drivers and apparently have only gone up in recent years, as as you pointed out, um, Uber um, have made, taken out anything resembling human contact from the job. Um, yeah. So that's really going to, again, depressing as age remarkably well. I think that Trader himself described it as an iron coffin, as how he described the taxi in the film. Jesus. Yeah, um, and that's kind of what it felt like as well. But actually, out of curiosity, like watching this now, we are coming out of a global pandemic. Everybody's been in lockdown and isolation. Is I know we're going to talk about the other stuff in the film in the spoiler zone, but in terms of like that, the loneliness of the film, did anybody was did it feel one? One thing it's that a immediately COVID, it's a great got COVID me. film. <laughs> it is, yeah. yeah. And one thing that immediately uh, got me is when I was watching it, I was like, I've, I've gotten healthier since COVID. I've you know <laughs> been trying to like. And then I was like, wait, I do 50 press-ups now and sit-ups. And then I looked over at my chin-up bar as he was doing chin-ups and was like, uh-oh, I feel like I'm back in that Uber again. Alex just like watching the film with his hand over the stove going, why isn't this working? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Yeah, if you have one of those uh, stoves where it's not like... Um... Gas. Where, where it's not the gas, yeah. Where, where, it's where it's it... very unimpressive. It is, it is. It's very difficult to, to do that. And then you get your hand stuck to it. Thankfully, I have a gas one, so we can, I can do it appropriately. Uh, oh, excellent. Good. So good. Um, and, yeah, and Rina, I, okay. I went... Oh, sorry. No, um, go ahead there, no I was going to say, I, I went through that phase of being very healthy. Kind of. Oh, okay. I thought no, you no, 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 that's it. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you qualified that. No, with, with the... With the um, with what's happened in COVID, like uh, when for the first few months, I was like, this is great. But like, like the last week, especially is going to be like, um, it's like, oh, no, this is really uh, terrible. I, 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 I think I think like crucially being being in a house on your own, like I've hardly ever done that. And I always think of myself as really independent. <laughs> But then I realize when I'm in a house alone that I'm really not. I must just be doing all these things for other people um, uh, because they can see me. Um, like it, You don't it, have to tell us if you're wearing pants, Andrew. It's fine. I am wearing pants. I, I, I'm, I'm wearing pants. Um, why, why do you want to know so much about my pants, Darren? Um, uh-huh. but, um, but no, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't recommend this this movie to people for that reason because like like if if i don't know maybe it's a good wake-up call for anyone stuck kind of in 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 that type of taxi driver life um get up do something rescue a prostitute exactly yeah yeah do do your chin-ups do your (laughs) press-ups well yeah and uh, like when when there'll be no more garbage (laughs) apart from bills and beer um (laughs) 
<laughs> Get that new haircut you always wanted. Give yourself the haircut you always knew. I, I did think about giving myself that um, mohawk just um, before before the podcast. But I have to, I have to meet my girlfriend's parents. <laughs> so I, I figured like no that's probably a bad idea um oh. so no i'd be very careful about about recommending this movie i did the, the hinkley thing um i i always think of there was like an episode of american dad where he goes back in time and one of the things he he does is he sees Martin Scorsese in a bathroom and it says, hey, you better get rid of those drugs. You're never going to win an Oscar. <laughs> like, if if uh, if you're just smoking those jazz cigarettes. And he's like, yeah, you're right, man. And then he never makes um, Taxi Driver and um, Hinckley never shoots Reagan and Mondale wins the 1984 um, election and 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 surrenders to the Soviet Union after like thirty days, <laughs> and, um, and they're all living in this kind of like Soviet um, uh, world with like tanks driving around and everything. So yeah, so, it's I mean, very, the Taxi Driver is an important movie. Then is what you're saying in a very movie. Right, yeah. that sort of way. Um, yeah, Rena, what about yourself? Would you recommend listeners if they haven't watched Taxi Driver that they watch Taxi Driver? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I can't stress this enough that if you, if you, um, one of the people that really, really connected to Joker and thought that was mm. an amazingly original movie, um, you know, it, it wouldn't be, it, it would be a good idea to go back and, and check this out and just to see just, you know, and, and this being the first time I've watched it since seeing Joker, um, I, you know, I, I don't think it's a surprise that I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of Joker at all, but um, just how much he just, how much was just stolen from it. And it, it's not right a- down to the garbage strike, because the garbage strike was an accident while making Taxi Driver, but it becomes a plot point in Joker. Exactly. Ugh. Yeah, it, it's just um, it, 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 it kind of it turned Taxi Driver from being the dark, uncomfortable movie that made you look at the world you live in, made you look at people that you know and the kind of mentality that you, um, you know, that I don't think it, whether or not people identified with Taxi Driver or not, it definitely doesn't glamorize it. But Joker is sort of the, the, the it, it kind of makes it the hero out of that character. And I think it's, if, if, if you particularly identified with Joker, you have, um, duty to go and watch Taxi Driver, and, and, and kind of understand the, you know, the the the, the more authentic, um, nasty side of that mentality and that character. Because I think that's, um, it, you know, I I I think that's kind of important to to look, especially if you're one of the people that like that movie. <laughs> I, I should say I mean, actually here I liked it a bit more than most people on this podcast to be clear but yes I think one of the issues with Joker is that it is as much it's very much a studio product and therefore is afraid to go to the places the taxi driver goes by necessity um, and it very much pulls back I think taxi driver we'll talk about this in the in the kind of spoiler zone pulls back in interesting ways that are worth talking about uh, particularly towards the climax of the movie but I think yeah. Joker very much pulls its punches in a way that this doesn't um, and I say that as somebody who probably likes it more than our three guests our two guests and our one co-host 
um, at least. Well, no, I, I, I think I liked it okay. Like, it was uh, you're not the co-host dr- I'm talking about, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not to it, step on Jay. It, <laughs> I will say, though, fairness, I've only saw 50 minutes of Sonic Critique, so... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, well, it, a, it is a story about a man who does say enough is enough, Jay. So I think he really had the true Joker experience there. Um, well, that's great. <laughs> <I'm> delighted. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, sorry. No, the even 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 in the Joker, like none of none of the clowns are clowns. They're all these like clowns in a clown depot, and it's obvious that they're not clowns at all. They're taxi drivers. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the clown depot. This is a taxi depot. Yeah, like uh, it, it, just for the fact that you don't have any cars around. Um, <laughs> Do you think they're funny though? Eh? Do you think they're to amuse you? Yeah. I don't see anybody else here. You must they're be they're clowning they're... at me. Yeah. Um, yeah, like it, you look at them and you don't think clown. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, right down to the casting of a, a Glenn Fisher in or Glenn Flesher in the kind of like wizard role, right down to we found the most Peter Boyle looking fellow we could imagine. Uh, like, um, But anyway, sorry, Jay, what about yourself? Would you Whatever. recommend listeners if they have not seen oh, Taxi Driver yet that they go out and watch I don't know, Joker? actually. Uh, like, it, I, as much as I undoubtedly love it, I. If you're wary about recommending it to anyone, then putting them through it. Um, if you're, I think, if you're interested in film in terms of filmmaking or film writing, I think it's essential. If you're just a film watcher, I'd be less inclined to. If you discover it, great, but I don't think I'd be forcing it on anyone. You know, yeah. Uh, I think as a technical and kind of as a period of history and stuff like that, I think it's absolutely essential. I, I think you've made our recommendation section sound much more forceful than it is. Um, yeah, I know. I'm not <laughs> suggesting, you know, we... Like, there's a people anybody, down here. Yeah. I've got to put a 44 Magnum in your head to watch it. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, but it's like, it, yeah, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's intense. It's a full-on yeah, experience. It is very, very I'd, nice. I'd, I'd recommend it with its somewhat hesitant kind of demeanor. All right, then, with that in mind, then, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. I presume there's like a, when you say spoiler zone, does the Twilight Zone music come in? Obviously, no. <laughs> Can you get rights issues out of rights issues? <laughs> music. Um, but um, quick one for you. So Reno, we, we did have Kenny Loggins. We did have oh, Kenny Loggins, enough. but then we that's kind of moved enough. away from that. Yeah. <laughs> if you had to choose between one or the other, um, who is to say, really? But Reno, what what is? Ta- I like that I said Reno and Jay said yes. Um, did I? <laughs> Reno, what is Taxi Driver about for you? Um, I. Taxi Driver is a snapshot of the United States in the 70s, much like what you were saying earlier. It's a mood and it's a feeling that you can't necessarily just equate it to, you know, the the God's lonely man character and, and that being the one story that it's about. I think it's it's something that you absorb as an experience as being a piece of history in American cinema. Um, it's exactly the reaction of what America was going through at that time, going through Vietnam, post-Watergate, the kind of the 
intense rise in crime and uh, violent drug-related crime in New York as well. I think it's it's sort of a reaction to how America was quickly changing during that time. And for me, watching it, I feel like I'm watching a piece of history because it's so steeped in that everything down through the perspective of what Travis experiences, how small he feels against the vast tide of that he felt New York was becoming and how he becomes a product of his environment and the the kind of the um the fact that he's so equally intrigued and eager to be a part of this world that he's so repelled by and how he becomes such a product of that environment by the hate that he's surrounded by the anger and the violence that ultimately seeps in through his pores and becomes him he's sort of like the sponge for what new york was becoming and what america was becoming and i think that's what is so fascinating about it you just get a sense of this was america this was people being continually isolated people being alienated and then just being surrounded by hate and violence and crime and drugs and political strife and just absorbing all of it and becoming this sort of hateful little pocket of what America eventually became. And to me, that's what Taxi Driver is about. And that's what it um, becomes so continually relevant about it as you watch it. You're just watching this piece of history completely defined by this one character. It is worth noting, actually, just in, in context there of, of the idea of kind of Travis as a sponge, because I do find this what's fascinating about this film in particular. And I think also some of Scorsese's other work as well, if we're being honest. But it's this idea that Travis is not necessarily a person. And in fact, he actually has this kind of dialogue in his kind of mad journal that he's writing about, you know, a person should be a person, should become a person, should become an individual. But what's interesting about Travis is that he's not really, he becomes this kind of, you describe him as a sponge where he just soaks up kind of what's around him. And so you have like throughout the film, you have this sense of Travis folding in everything that he's hearing from other people and incorporating into his worldview in a way that kind of like fits how angry and dispossessed he feels. And again, you, you have this kind of like, we, we mentioned before we got into the spoiler zone, this idea that like the difference between Travis and a protagonist of European existentialist cinema is that Travis doesn't know how to articulate how he's feeling. And I think the trader says, you know, the difference is that if somebody felt this way in Europe, they would kill themselves. In America, they would kill lots of other people. Yeah. Everybody else, it, yeah. Um, it reminds me it reminds me of um kind of creating an artificial intelligence that's like a blank <laughs> blank slate and then placing that in the internet. Kind of Oh yeah, new, where it became new... racist, the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where like um, It took two new... hours for it to become racist. New York in in, in the 1970s is like the internet today, like a terrible place where you don't want to spend time. Um, yeah. um, and, but I think what's interesting is, and you quite literally have that with, say, the, the second of the two Scorsese cameos, uh, which apparently he wasn't meant to play. It was really intended for an actor, I think, George uh, Mamoli, um, who apparently was injured on the set of another movie and Scorsese had to step in at the last minute. But you have Scorsese in the backseat of the cab very literally directing um, Travis's gaze. And like the way that it's shot as well, the camera is in like Travis's perspective. And you have Scorsese saying, look at the window. No, look look over at the window. Move your eyes. There, now you can see the window. 
You see the window, right? And very much giving direction to Travis and giving direction to his eyes, to what Travis sees and to what we see as well. And it's like through that character that kind of, you know, he gets the notion of getting a gun and of tying like that sense of resentment that he has towards women because he's already talked about like Betsy in this really spiteful, hateful, vindictive way where it's like, I thought she was special, but she turned out to be like all those other women. I think he actually says they must have a union. And so he ends up like through the Scorsese character tying that sense of frustration with yeah. women to violence towards them. And yeah. throughout, he just kind of soaks this up. You see a lot of like his rhetoric mirroring um, Palatine's sort of dialogue where Palatine's talking about how we're at a crossroad and we've taken all the wrong turns to get to where we are today. And you have like, again, you have this sense of Travis in his diary talking about how every choice I made brought me to this place. I was always on this road and where I've ended up as a place of scum and villainy and kind of populated by people who are horrible. But what I think is actually interesting as well is the way in which like Travis, Travis's apartment is largely sparse and empty um, apart from things like the flowers and things like the kind of like the workout chin up bar and stuff like that. But he does have a television and we repeatedly see him watching television. And what's interesting, I think about Taxi Driver, and maybe this is a nice pivot into talking about like its treatment of masculinity, is the idea that Travis, and Scorsese's talked about this as well, like he sees Taxi Driver as in his own words, a feminist film. And again, this gets to something I think Andrew talked about when we talked about Inception, where the idea that misogyny is something that affects women, but it's a problem for men in that it's men who have an obligation to fix this stuff. And Scorsese said that like the issue or what he we tried to capture in Taxi Driver was the idea that men are never really taught how to relate to women as human beings. And instead they kind of internalize messages that they get from broader culture, from how other men talk about them. And you have Wizard, obviously, talking about, you know, the story that was probably made up about the sex in the backseat of his taxi, for example. But even, like, the soap opera selling the kind of romance and love, the the wonderful dancing to music um, in the kind of show. And the It's sense funny as well, because I feel like the other people in that conversation can tell that it's not true. Yeah, and but that Travis... wizard doesn't expect anyone <laughs> to to take this kind of um, uh, at face value, but that that Travis obviously does. Yeah, I and guess. then the sense that kind of like Travis has kind of soaked all this stuff because it's interesting that the climax of the movie, and again, this is something of a Paul Schrader special because I think he does it as well in Hardcore with George C. Scott. The climax of Taxi Driver is Travis Bickle recreating The Searchers, uh, which is a western which is that, you know, archetypal American narrative. It's a story about a man who finds a woman who's being victimized by these people, these animals, these scum, these people that are less than he is. And we're probably going to talk about the handling of race in a moment as well, um, because it's notable that um, the character of sport was originally written as African-American, but they opted to change that when they were told that there would be race riots um, if the climax of the movie found Travis Bickle gunning down uh, three black men to rescue a white woman. But again, you have the sense that like Travis has folded this idea of like the searchers and the Western and the archetypal American narrative into his own. So the only way that he can, quote unquote, be a man is to enact that, is to find a white woman who's being victimized and then act out this fantasy of male violence with these gigantic, impractical guns. And I think it's notable that the magnum that they use, that I think that Easy Andy points out, is something they use to hunt, like, elephants in Africa. Um, But it's it's the gun from Dirty Harry. And it's actually framed like the gun from Dirty Harry as well. And it's very much, again, this sense that Bickle hasn't learned how to be a person from any other human being. He's just kind of, like, picked it up in the air. 
and that's kind of horrifying and unsettling. And it's a very it's a very particular air as well, because yeah. they, they, they and it, it, it and this is the sense in which it's not a postcard from the nineteen seventies that, that that like the that is still um, relevant and that no no country really is 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 murder and violence more kind of um kind of important and essential to like its identity than 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 in America. Yeah, so it's, yeah. Like in yeah, every every country romanticizes kind of its violent past. Um but it it it, it generally feels like something that, that kind of belongs in history in, in some of the in some of the more kind of like like um mature democracies of this world. Um but in in the United States, um, it never it, it violence and murder are never too far kind of away from from being the um, um, like the defining uh, moments of 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 their of their history. You know? Yeah, I mean it's it's notable that I think sport refers to him repeatedly as a cowboy, um, as well. Like he yeah. refers to Travis repeatedly as a cowboy. He shaves That's... his head into a mohawk as well. And even the guy who runs the CD ten out ten dollars per hour motel room calls him a cowboy I'll, as well. I'll 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 relate to this one more time, but it <laughs> it's relevant in in terms of like what you're saying in in the American Dad, um, they have to then they have to then try to recreate Taxi Driver to make sure that Reagan gets shot, but um, <laughs> Robert De Niro doesn't want to to. To do it the way that he's been told to do it, so he recasts John Wayne. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's a, a, a very different movie, <laughs> but yeah, but it, also it perhaps ends the, the same, same way. Movie. Yeah, because yeah, he he dry, like arrives like in the desert, like um, to 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 in a taxi, kind of with his six shooters to 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 take take her away from from. Yeah. But that, that's that's very much how Travis sees it. Though, yeah. Thing, I think. I think it's important to note the, the, you know the the, the um the context of the story of of it being in two parts, one Betsy and the other Iris. Is it's it's they're both equally related to each other in terms of how it um, spurs that that intention to rescue Iris. Is he's trying to go down the route of being a normal person and trying to relate to women and and trying to um trying to feel like he can fit in and when that doesn't work his focus becomes on iris as being the object of in you know innocence and needing to restore that sense of Take me um, out of here, all right, I think is how she's introduced, like, which is very much that fantasy. Take me out of here, yeah, and, you know, you want to come in your taxi and take me away again. And it's, you know, for him, I think it's the restoring of his faith in women and wanting to restore some sense of order of, you know, women are not um, prostitutes. <laughs> women are, 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 it's the restore the restoration of innocence that he's looking after. I think that's always fascinating that that's how he's going to view it he's not going to um you know when he can't quite get that affirmation in one aspect of his life he's going to try and enforce it on another person's life uh, yeah. 
whether they're willing to do it or not and what he was going to get hurt in the meantime as well. Yeah, because it's all yeah. about his narrative. It's about him. Like, it's not what Iris wants. Because Iris points no. out that she had a very traumatic life back where she came from. There's a reason why she ran away. Now, obviously, prostitution it's, as a 12 year old yeah. is not like a good thing to be in. But it's very much, it's not, it's very clear from watching the movie. It's not the narrative that Travis is imposing. There's a, a slightly foreboding line in her parents' letter at the end where they're like we have taken measures so she cannot leave again and it's it's very well done and like another it sort of mirrors the more forwarding line is after travis first meets her and he's so kind of nearly disgusted and kind of like thrown by her and then saying all this stuff and then after he learns her real name he's sort of like processing and he's like okay and then it like in his wonderful De Niro performance because he yeah. sort of like that's it and you can see he's just putting the picture of this person together in his mind and before he leaves he's like okay Iris I'm Travis yes yeah, nice to meet you and then he stops and goes sweet Iris and like <laughs> and you can just see he's just like oh now I have somebody else to be obsessed yeah, over yeah. she's perfect yeah, yeah and walks away exactly yeah that's what's so creepy to me about it that line of sweet Iris it's just the you know he's he's framing her as yes now you're the the childlike, you know, focus of my affections that, you know, it's not sexual, it's not, um, yeah. it, it, it's not love, it's just somebody needs me now and I'm going to save her. And it's just so grim and uncomfortable. And then it does, it does shift into that really dark territory where you're like, but yeah, she needs to be rescued. This is horrible for a girl yeah. to... And you're right there with him being like, yeah, he should go and, and, and rescue her. And then it's just, it's that kind of crossover of like, yeah, but this is not very, oh, I don't know. I, I, I feel like this. And... But it's so well done as well, the way it plays all of the different layers of trauma for Iris. Because like, like to lose um, sport and to have her life kind of as a, as a prostitute kind of turned upside down and destroyed you have to believe that she she actually does um love sports and that there's some sort of uh, like like the, the 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 scene where he's kind of where like, they dance yeah yeah which is where, again where, riffing off that sequence from the television where he's watching couples dance as well hmm yeah. yeah but with 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 sports and iris the way he um he kind of says everything that a um pimp ought to say to um uh, to to a prostitute in order to 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 groom them you know like like he um and she's so kind of um attached to him so that, I mean, like, at the if, end of the if, film, she's like weeping in the corner while he's oh, yeah. like rescued her, you know? Because that, that, that's the thing that's so effective is just knowing that like if Iris wasn't psychologically scarred before, before. she she definitely is now. Like the, because you've added another thing. Not only has she had a bad time where she came from. Um, she's and... been sent back there. Um, and she oh, has yeah. a bad memory of when she left. But like, also, uh, like, her her sort of uh, new, um, uh, like, the closest thing that she had to kind of, um, like, she she probably felt some sort of kind of familial connection or, or uh, even to, or, you know, there, there, there's, there, a very strong bond has, has and 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 it's weird because like obviously you want this guy 
to die. You want her to get out of this situation. But it's you. What I mean is, is that you you see how it feels for her. Yeah. You know, which is oh, not, that, not something that Travis about. sees. Yeah. I guess. And again, it's kind of interesting. I think one of the things the movie does rather well is that it kind of contrasts um, Travis's original plan to kill Palatine, uh, which obviously I think that, you know, I think that Schrader's drawn influence from, I think it was uh, Bremer, Arthur Bremner, who shot uh, George Wallace and paralyzed him. Um, but basically he kind of took influence from that story. And you have this idea that, you know, originally Travis is going to kill Palatine and that would be a huge scandal. It would get him sent to prison. He'd probably get the death penalty for it if he pulled it off as well. But because he chooses to vent his frustration towards people who are criminals, towards people who exist in an underworld at the edge or margins of society, what would have been an act of brutality and violence becomes something that is celebrated and lauded. He becomes a celebrity. He's praised for killing, you know, what in his own world, the animals or the scum of the city. Again, which is something very Bernie gets, which is quite impressive. Again, the, the movie seems to predict Bernie gets, where you, you end up with John Hinckley, who's the man who tried to shoot Palantine, but you also get Bernie gets, who's the man who killed four African American kids and was basically praised for it uh, in the press. Got off, yeah. Bernie. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, um, in the in the newspaper um, write up, they have like a visual representation as well of of like all of the kind of like um, bodies as well. Like here's how he did it. You yeah. know, he he shot this person downstairs, and there they are. And here's here's the three people um, in the um, in the upstairs room. Like it's all done out sort of in a diagram. Yeah. As if to kind of celebrate and Is it worth looking at uh, when I and that final sequence where the letter, the parents' letters being heard over the kind of montage of By the, the way, cameo from stuff, yeah. Charles Scorsese. and Catherine Scorsese. Yeah. Are they yeah. supposed to be like Iris's parents? Yep. <laughs> they, yeah, they're apparently they're like, like 60 years of age or whatever. <laughs> Wait, who, what's the cameo? The cameo they, is like the, the, the couple who appear in... The, in uh, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think Marty's that. parents that was, like, hang on a second. Yeah, surely they're uh, grandparents, but anyway, yeah, it just made me laugh. Our, what will be a recurring motif of our Scorsese season? <laughs> yes, um, we're Burton Scorsese's parents, just always old. I feel like every I think it's where, right? Yeah. That exact age, like, yeah, because yeah. he did Italian American afterwards as well. I think after this, which is so, glorious, yeah, and available on Criterion, I believe, as well. Yeah, yeah. Your yeah. Um, but very quickly, actually, in terms of the ending, because we can touch on that now. Um, one of the big debates in this is the debate over whether we are to take it kind of literally or metaphorically or to see it as a dying dream sequence. I think I think that Ebert in his review has suggested that it's not meant to be read as something that's actually happening, that we can see it as the dying dream of Travis Bickle. I think that Pauline Kale, who was a big defender of the film, in fact, actually, she read the script uh, before it was produced thought it was brilliant but apparently was so unsettled by it that she could not sleep with it in the same room as her she took it into another room piled a bunch of books on top of it and then went to sleep afterwards and apparently kale was we'll talk maybe about some of the controversies with the studio later on but kale was influential in resolving those but she's argued that no the whole point of that sequence is that it is real the whole point of that sequence is that the city is ultimately even crazier than travis himself so what what do we make of the ending? Do we think that there's, is it one or the other or is it both? Um, I think Scorsese for his part has said he intended it to be read literally, although it's more like music than like storytelling. I think it's the importance of it being real because it's that he had to, um, he had to commit this act of violence to become 
a, a full member of the American society and that it is a, this is his comment on um, Travis's America. He is now absorbed. He is now fully formed. He is, you know, a, a, a real American as far as, you know, being John Wayne and going in and, and retrieving the girl from from the savages. He is the he is the hero. And I think that's what's so beautiful about that little last shot at the end is just that he's always going to be taking over and something else is going to surge within him that he is still unhinged. I think that's the, you know, the, the idea of it being potentially glorifying the ending is, you know, you could read it as that particular way that like, yes, he is a hero and everything's going to be, you know, and he's assimilated into society and it's a happy ending, but it's the, the unsettling feeling that like even watching it again last night, it's just like, it's just like it's the fact that it is it does feel like a good ending but that's what makes it really really horrible um and isn't it am i right in assuming that in the 70s in the uk and ireland because my dad told me this that ending was cut from the film and that they and that cinemas in the uk and ireland only saw um right up until the end and and their understanding of taxi driver is that he dies at the end camera pulls out to the crowd outside oh. and then it's finished that I, I i that's what my dad told me is the version that he saw when he was in the 70s and i think norway and a couple of other places censored that ending because it was seen to glam to glamorize the violence of the end but um i haven't had any um backup information to see if that's true but um, i'm gonna trust me dad <laughs> all right I, I i couldn't find anything on that all i could find is that there were apparently cuts to the uk version yeah, um yeah. that that reduced some of the stuff around iris actually so the scene yeah, in the bedroom, and some example. of the yeah the censored stuff around iris was like the the sound of the zip lowering yes and that's like exactly that. yeah um, and then there's a european version with like so much more stuff about iris right is, <laughs> is, is that how it goes the Luke Besson cut. Yeah, the Luke Besson cut. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Sorry for that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but um, actually, very, very quickly, because it's kind of worth circling back to this, because we did mention the kind of divide that there is, or the kind of the mirroring that there is between uh, Betsy and between Iris. And it's kind of interesting that Jay mentioned earlier, this is a very, very tight film. I think what rewatching it for the podcast for the first time in what feels like 20 years um, I was quite surprised at how quickly the Betsy stuff is dealt with in the opening section of the film. It's literally the opening half hour. And then Betsy kind of haunts the rest of the narrative, so to speak, rather than being a central character. Because I remember that being much longer and much sort of, uh, you know, much hard. Well, it is. It's very hard to watch. But I remember it being a bigger part of the film uh, in hindsight, which is ironic. But even even then, what's interesting with, with the Betsy stuff is that even in, I think Greenock described it as his attempt to be a normal, in inverted commas, man, there's still a real sense of Bickle not having any idea how to do it aside from what he's been told on television. Because even um, even in that early conversation when he's trying to take her out for a date and he invites her around for cheese and apple pie, um, he's, he's very much like, oh, don't worry, I'll protect you because that is my function as a man. It's grand. We'll go mm. around the corner. I'll be with you. You will be safe. Um, but that's the part of the ending that I, I, I agree absolutely with everything um, Rina just sort of said that I, I kind of think it's literal as well it's meant to be taken literally rather than a dream sequence or anything but and I think for all those reasons you almost need an ending to let the film have that bite and sort of say yeah you know this is America where you can 
wage a completely unnecessary war in Southeast Asia for 25 years and then not really learn anything from it and actually maybe come home and be praised and, and for all these other reasons. Um, and like you already mentioned, Schrader sort of said that this is a uniquely American story. I think he says something on the commentary, like if this were set somewhere else, you know, he'd probably just shoot himself. But it's in America where he picks up 10 guns and goes and kills three or four people. But the ending for me and, and the Betsy point is, I think all of that is is required for that that bite of the, the ending and the like horror of the, the ending. But then Betsy getting into the car and sort of giving him the flirtatious eyes, I'm a little like, hang on a minute. Like, That's wait, too much. You know, the, yeah. yeah. Now you've gone too that, far. That really does not seem like, oh, yeah, the guy who came into my office and called me scum two weeks ago. Turns out he shot three people in Harlem. You know what? I'm going to give him a call. You know, Maybe a lot of couples did go to that movie. Um, well, I think that, that, that kind of scene does kind of uh, influence the conversation around the dream sequence elements of it. Uh, that it's a Travis dying wish fulfillment that you know he does become home the hero and he does get the girl and he does get to resume his life as a fully functioning member of society. So I can, well, is, I, do, is, I, I do understand that reading of it. I have to say, is it is is that not just kind of? Um, I feel like Martin Scorsese, and maybe this is a bit unfair, but I always get the impression from him that he's a kind of a small sort of a. Uh, physically weak man who 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 likes to kind of fantasize about 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 what it's like to be this kind of um um uh, dark sort of action hero now not 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 that that's what travis bickle is but if it did if um if you know what i mean like like the, the i think he likes to the, pick at it and explore it i think it's only yeah, fascinates yeah. him i don't well think... I, I don't i don't know yeah like i i don't i i i i shouldn't kind of like but the it 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 often feels like that's where it kind of um um comes from it's from not being that person yeah. that 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 makes him kind of want to to explore it or like like i imagine I imagine Martin Scorsese is not the kind of guy who enjoys ha- having a gun in his hand, you know. Yeah. Like, like, like that, that, that the experience would be frightening for him. What's interesting though is that like he's talked about it, and I think that what resonates with him isn't necessarily the violence, but the way in which the the films treat women. And he's talked about how as a man, as a young man himself in particular, he found that one of the things that as he got older, as he kind of reached his 20s and kind of like went out into the world, what he found really uncomfortable was that he had no idea how to relate to women, how to understand women. Um, And that this kind of like filters through a lot of his work. I mean, his first feature length film was Who's That Knocking at My Door, which is about a man from a Roman Catholic background who's struggling with the fact that the woman that he loves was sexually assaulted and his inability to come to terms and to reconcile with that. Um, And again, this idea that kind of plays through a lot of his early films about men who don't necessarily understand women as having like agency, like the fact that Travis literally cannot fathom why... Betsy wouldn't want to go to a porno film with him to pick an obvious. I mean, Scorsese literally embodies that in this film where he plays this like yeah. horrible little troll in the backseat talking about killing his wife. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, I, I, I think that there, that is a conscious kind of thing. I think that's something that he's he's aware of. Um, and again, he's pointed out like the film is structured. So you have quite literally the Madonna and the whore and the whore herself is a madonna so to speak you have this kind of like yeah it's actually when you say the who does travis envision as the madonna and the whore you can't actually 
yeah. you can't equate that to either other character. And it's interesting when you said that that Betsy kind of haunts the film. I actually, you know, I, I of course, the two stories fit side by side for each other. But yeah, like even down to Jodie Foster's hair is styled the exact same way as Betsy's. The the you Long know hair blue eyes thing yeah it's this this kind of weird you know transference of the jokey um socially acceptive socially normative i'm the man i'm going to protect you i come in here i see you're lonely i'm going to take you away from all of this i literally and come then- into your office and then take you out to a diner like that that's the big yeah, old yeah. playbook so to speak like you imagine that if he hadn't killed sport his next move would have been to take her to a porno movie yeah. yeah, I think what's interesting about Taxi Driver, and I think what it makes it stand as a kind of companion piece to Rage and Bull in a lot of ways, and it gets at what Scorsese sees the world, and particularly when he was younger, is they're both explorations of of uh, damaged men who can't emote and connect to people, particularly women. Um, and I think those films sit side by side and get sadder in a lot of ways as 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 the longer they exist. And like the frustration with Travis is that it's like he can't connect he can't even see women as people in yeah. as, in any way like there are people there are ciphers where he can put whatever hopes dreams and imaginary ideas yeah. of people yeah. into and i, I mean there's that, a really great sequence where he's like yeah. he can't remember betsy's last name he's like yeah. i need to like that's start, level of... things like this <laughs> yeah. yeah that's just like i need to remember to ask her last name i need to be more interested and engaged in conversation yeah, it's, 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 yes, right it. he almost writing it down literally to remind himself yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and i think Rachel or even like when he's talking about her work well. and it's like what about that other man yeah what about that yeah. other man you know that's, that's... And you see it with you see it with jake lamada as well like a lot of the time he like his his envision of what women are supposed to be, the insane jealousy, the fact that they can't have any agency in terms of themselves and how they see the world and existing outside of his sphere. I think it's really interesting to look at that. And I think there is a critique of it to a lot of ways. And as Scorsese explored in his own kind of biases and views in that regard and, and men's biases and views of it. Yeah. It actually does make me think about a lot of, you know, kind of hate that you would see on online as well in which, you know, people who can um who can apply their point of view of how they wish they could see women and innocence and purity and just apply it to um you know a particular level of outrage onto something you know i think what travis does with iris is he takes all that rage and, and that outrage over betsy and he forms this really neat narrative around Iris, like you should be young, you should be going out with boys, you should be at home, you know, in school, in school, and and just the, um, the 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 you know the the fact that he's going to, um, to completely traumatize her in and by killing all these people in front of her has nothing to do with it because he's he's living out this fantasy purely for his own fulfillment yeah, of his own outrage. Exactly that. It, you can equate that so much to, you know, online outrage of people being, um, you know, outraged over the minister for children having had a picture taken with someone who, um, you know, wants to lower the age of consent. And that, you know, like the the level of venom in which people will want to, to to throw that somewhere in a direction of a cause because it's not because of any meaningful expression of actually helping someone it's because of their own fulfillment and their own exorcism of their own outrage it's got nothing to do with any any actual any, belief. Gen, genuine belief in wanting to change yeah, yeah. 
for, I mean, for their own fulfillment. There's a really scary line um, when he goes and he's like talking to Betsy and he's talking about the connection. He, then he says, that gave me the right to talk to you. And I remember getting like shivers about that because that's something a lot of people probably still say online. Very incest. Oh, yeah, it's just the, the um, that scene makes me cringe in so many ways. Like this, yeah. the first initial, you know, I, th I think you were the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And like the... But that's you know, all he's interested in about her. That's like, that's the only connection that he has to her is that he thinks she's the most beautiful woman in the world. There's no other interest that he has in her as a person. She's There's a great bit where she's talking about how difficult organizing a presidential campaign <laughs> is. And he's like, yeah, my life is also really disorganized. My apartment's a mess. And then makes like the most alien, like joke. you, you were talking, Andrew, about like the AI system. <laughs> it is like an AI system telling a joke where he's like, organize but it's it's spelled incorrectly with a z you know you're like oh my god and i love that sign comes back in he actually buys that sign and puts it into the into his apartment i'm just like oh he actually bought it he you made know? it yeah. part of his personality um yeah. and again it's, it's just also in terms of that as well even that sequence the fact that like when he's talking about her work the immediate thing that he does is to talk about the character of tom played by albert brooks it's like i'm not actually interested in what you do i'm just interested that you're around other men that guy and, i like I, the guy you work with i don't like him yeah, <laughs> it's not that, that it follows up. It's not that I don't like him. I just don't think he's very good. It's like I just find him serious. Yes, I've, yeah. I've interacted with him all of two seconds, but I've already reached this judgment. I don't think there's a connection between the two of you. Um, also, is, I, I and I'm with Travis in that though. I don't particularly like Albert Brooks in it either. I have to say, I yeah, like but, him in it, but, but I don't like the character either. I'm with but Travis in that Jay, regard. Jay, Jay, like, you've, you've, that regard only. Jay, Jay, you've spent more time with Albert Brooks though than Travis has. To be fair. Um, that's probably true uh, probably. no I, I do like albert brooks but i do that character is is a kind of the quieter slimy guy that yeah. you know gets away with it get you know a little easier not he's not albert brooks from drive yeah i was gonna say is that what renux said there which i find interesting is the level of transference um there as well because it's very clear that like travis's anger as much as he might frame it in terms of cleaning up the city or the scum or whatever, it's all, and again, this is one of those things that is, and I feel like we're using the phrase very incel quite frequently in this podcast, but it is very incel. But it's the idea that the targets of his violence are the people who he feels have the things that he is entitled to. And that as a result, he kind of spins out. And so his hatred is very much projected outwards from the fact that he cannot have what he wants so you have things like you know th we'll talk about the racial politics of the movie in a moment but the fact that the first woman in the movie to reject him is black and after that you get this progressive yeah. kind of sense of black people being seen as hostile through this intensely yeah. like intensely subjective point of view and i mean we'll talk about that maybe in a moment separately but you have things like betsy who's working for palatine and then palatine becomes the target of his ire he's going to kill palatine because betsy works for palatine it's the obvious so, you know like you're supposed to make there and then you have sport who is the the pimp um who possesses iris and therefore because you know he can't have iris or because you know he can't come to terms with the situation with iris he's going to kill sport because sport has iris you have this sense of transference there where everything that he does stems from the fact that he was hurt related to these two women and he cannot process that in a way that a healthy person can one of the more interesting things about the movie um and it's been pointed out by a number of viewers including say ebert and kale and actually Lindsay soldat did a really good piece on this in the ringer which is very worth reading we'll include in the show notes is that like 
the movie's climax is incredibly bloody and violent, and we'll maybe talk about that in a moment as well in the battles with the studio over that. But the movie has one very pointed moment of discretion, one point at which the camera cannot look at something. And it's notably, yeah, it's, I think, yeah, Reno knows exactly which sequence this okay. is. It's uh, so the hallway, great. Is it? The hallway but, sequence. It's the uh, sequence yeah. where he's on the phone talking to Betsy. Camera's too embarrassed to look at him and it's like, yeah. Ugh. yeah. Like the camera will show you the blood and the guts and the violence, and the dead bodies and the scum and the filth, but it cannot, like, in good conscience, show you the which- heartbreak of this man. Um, which is kind of, again, harrowing. I think Lindsay's old dads point out that it reminds her of the expression, you know, um, was it uh, women fear men will kill? Sorry, men fear women will laugh at them, and women fear men will kill them. And it almost oh, feels yeah. like Atwood. An, an ex- yeah, Atwood. It almost feels like an expression of that, where it's like the worst thing for Travis is not to be involved in a brutal bloodbath um, involving a twelve-year-old prostitute. It's to be rejected by this woman he's objectified over the phone. That's and the worst thing that could happen. It's so uncom. It's so uncomfortable to watch, and it's so beautiful. Just. you know at the point at which you're like okay well he's it's a routine rejection call it's like i'm do you want to go to dinner oh you feeling well you know are you feeling any better and then it just is like did you get my flowers Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh it's like it keeps going and it it actually made me think of like how how it must have felt to try and block someone in, in the 70s. Like, you know, your phone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You couldn't answer any call. You literally have to move I'm, cities, yeah. yeah. I'm really glad that all of the, uh, like, romantic rejection I suffered growing up, that I that I, that I just liked myself less. Yeah, where my hatred uh, was like, oh, I'm terrible, and it, that, it, that it didn't go outwards. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that's, that's the, 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 the kind of silver lining. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing about Taxi Driver as well that is so important to, to Travis is his, uh, his, his war experience, the fact that he's suffering from PTSD and he can't sleep. Um, the connection he makes with the cabbie at the start, um, you know, when it's a, you know, it's a fairly blunt conversation about working as a as a cabbie, but it's then when the other guy realizes that he was in the Marine Corps that the whole conversation goes like, right, okay, I get it, I totally know why you're trying to do this, and that's sort of the, you know, it's never dissected, it's never explored, um, because he's just he's a guy that went to Vietnam and saw some. And came home and is forever changed and has nothing to you know you can see that he's been shot or he's been um the scar on his back wounded. yeah so there's a lot of body memory and trauma there and that's not been worked out and that's still physically he's still physically at war and hasn't been able to kind of come home from that and i even as he progresses through the film you see in de niro and his eyes just become increasingly red and raw and dark and sullen. And you can see that he's physically not sleeping. There's just this kind of, you know, this specter of, of war that is not even mentioned uh, uh, apart from the first scene. Yeah. Um, I think that's just so, that, that's so important. And that, uh, how that feeds into, I've come home from war. I need to assimilate back into society. How do I do that? I need to get a girlfriend. I need to become a normal person. It's not even that he's genuinely interested in in uh, in in Betsy. 
emotionally or even sexually he's just like there she is i need to go and save her and be this person in order to be a you know a member of society again to become a real person i think is how he describes it yeah. from from being a veteran of war and being a veteran of the vietnam war where he has not quite come home and he's not ever coming home i think that's so that's so important in his character the the point as well that it's much easier to like the trying to um trying to be a person in the traditional ways that you're expected to uh, it's 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 just very difficult because you get misunderstood and that the the weird the the weird thing about this movie and about movies like it is that it, it's um uh while it's a way of us talking kind of um um about these things um in a sort of a detached way it's also kind of um serves as sort of vindication for 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 people like Hingley or 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 like gets to kind of uh, yeah yeah be, 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 because it act- actually things work out work out much better for um for Travis when he he makes the kind of um necessary violent steps um, yeah in 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 at the at the end of the movie and that that was the kind of conclusion that the movie was always kind of like getting to is it's like um there was no there was no other real kind of like choice for him he needed to do something he tried he tried doing the things he was meant to do and then he realized that there was some kind of um that there was something heroic or important that he was uh, meant uh to do and then and then he gets celebrated for it and um i think to tie that point back to like what we were talking about at the start about like the power of why this film is so disturbing and and to talk about um what renock was saying there about the hallway shot and how intimate it feels or something because you do feel like his sidekick through all of this and it's made in such a horribly like i I said earlier about you know wanting to to it feels like you're trapped in that steel coffin cab with him for the entire film you're in his apartment when he's saying there's nobody else here it's like yeah, but you're here. You're here with him. You're watching him on this journey. You're watching this inexorable climb to killing a bunch of people. And shots like that hallway shot, you know, you do end up feeling kind of sympathy for him because he's so like, I was shocked watching this when they mentioned at the start, he's 26. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, oh my God, he's like so young, you know. He's a kid. And he's, yeah, he is. And it's because De Niro perpetually in my head is always 50 for some reason, even when he's like 21 in right. Main Street. How old is Harvey Keitel? Like always. Like the, <laughs> yeah, the, he's yeah. another one. And I think when it's Gene, like the Irishmen are this, they're the same age. Gene, Gene Hackman. <laughs> like, yeah. He just, Did he ever like hair? straight yeah. out of the gates. He was just this really 70. old guy. Yeah. 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 But I think that's the power of why this is so disturbing because it feels like you're in on his conspiracy and and his conspiracy is so so off the wall and so kind of doesn't make sense and so like he's an alien who's arrived to earth and he's like wandering around New York and it's it's kind of like that um you know it, it's you know under the skin kind of feeling he's the alien trying yeah. to walk around and be like I don't I've become a part of this and of and of course, there's only the man who fell to New York. Yeah, <laughs> the kind of um, the the fact that his only experience of it during the day is in porno theaters, and at night it's being in the in the sewer of New York at nighttime. There's 
you know, this being the the only world that he chooses to absorb and then is repelled by it at the same time. And I and I, I even just when he said the intimacy of it, the choices that were made to make that that world not feel like New York, um, not not feel like we were um you know this big sprawling city where there's endless possibility but makes them feel closed in and dark and shadowy and even when he's in his apartment there's just constant interfering noise of people yelling or outside the cab or there's that kind of and that's why i kind of equated to cluche and that you know how gordon willis shot that film as well is that it's always so close up to to um to people's faces and to expressions and emotions while having this sort of dark shadowy, you know, hallways with pins down corridors and, and the, the projection of what your imagination does to those shadowy nowhere lands in the city. Um, I think that's what makes it so kind of psychologically compelling is that you always feel claustrophobic living in a city where there are endless amounts of people around you. Yeah, that's an anome, the paradox of like being alone with absolutely everybody, where yeah. you found that like despite living with more people than you would in a village or a small farming community, you actually feel more alone, despite the fact that in terms of density, there's somebody ten feet away from you at all times. I would like the idea of of if Travis was around today, he might have been able to just expel that that hate on Twitter for just a, a you know, and I kind of get his sort of like safety yes, valve. No, there was nothing stopping me. <laughs> Yeah. Done. <laughs> what, I, what I absolutely but love about his uh, narration, actually, is that, like, despite the fact that it's it's kind of hard-boiled, kind of, like, really yeah. misogynistic, really hateful, really, like, I am making a manifesto. Again, Alex pointed out, you know, you see the shooting and you expect the manifesto. Yeah, I yeah. love that the narration repeatedly kind of draws attention to the fact that Travis is not very smart or articulate. So he will repeatedly yeah. stutter in the voiceover work, or he'll pause on a word, or he'll repeat himself and build up to a word. Even um, when he does the like, listen, you fuckers, you scum. Yeah. Would not listen, you. Yeah, hold on. Yeah. Let me take it from the top here. Um, yeah, which is very again, like you could almost imagine that as kind of like a YouTube video today, which is the way he puts periods afterwards, like they cannot touch her. Like it's very, very, very scary, and also very Twitter. Um, unfortunately, yeah. But actually, and again, this is kind of tying back what Alex mentioned. I think what Renick was discussing there. The use of subjectivity in the film and particularly how it is shot and the cinematographer Michael Chapman does fantastic work here, but the way in which it like he at various points refers to the city as hell and you see that and again it's things like say you know the taxi going through the tunnel which is kind of lit in this kind of neon green kind of light or you know things like the traveling through the water from the fire hydrant that making the lights kind of glow or shimmer and stuff like that or even the amount of time that you spend in kind of travis's perspective and like watching his eyes and looking out at the city through them i think that's like one of the things that makes taxi driver so uncomfortable is the fact that, you know, like Alex mentioned, you know, we feel like we're standing with him there in the room. Sometimes we feel like we are him. Um, and that's that's really, really, really deeply unsettling, I think. The scene where he buys the guns and the camera, like, it's like pornography or something. Yeah. It goes across the magnum, like, really, really slowly. Like, oh, my God, look at this incredibly large gun you can now buy from this it's like, also, absolute um, maniac. It's also where he, he, he follow his hands with the gun pointing at the window. It's very Dealey plaza and this is like 13 years after yeah. the Kennedy assassination. Yes. So it ties back to the kind of Ken- the murdering of politicians. And notably, he points out two women as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And what's interesting is like, and again, you, you read about the kind of the production of it and the arguments that were had over it. One of the things that I find hilarious is that one of the big arguments over the film was the shot of the Alka-Seltzer um, in the water, where like apparently Columbia were like, why does that scene need to be in the movie? Why do people want to see a guy putting like Alka-Seltzer in a glass of water and watching it kind of bubble over and explode? This isn't a European art house film, which I kind of adore. Um, but famously, the climax of the film was also a source of much uh, discussion and debate uh, where the studio were like, what the hell? You can't put this in cinemas. This will get an X rating. So apparently what they decided to do was they decided they just desaturate the blood and remove, I think, three frames of the guy getting his fingers blown off. Um, and by It kind of works. It kind of plays into the whole like dreamy, you know, you're uh, kind of, you're not sleeping properly and you're on drugs. Oh, wait, 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 have we lost Jay? I'm kind of hanging on somewhere. <laughs> Somehow. My um, internet has gone right. very sketchy, so I don't know what's happening. Uh, all right. All right. Um, How many salpadine did you take? <laughs> <laughs> not, not enough is the answer to that one. The saturation on the camera is turning down. Yeah. Um, but what I do... Um, but again, that, that kind of subjectivity is interesting because I think one of the interesting points of discussion about uh, Taxi Driver, and we're probably only touching this very, very briefly, but is its handling of race. Um, and I think that Jay has shared a really wonderful article from Ash Clark, it'll be in our show notes as well, that kind of looks at the movie kind of through that lens because you do have this sense of you are very much in Travis's head. So you see the camera looking at people, uh, African-Americans in New York in the 1970s in a way that is designed to present them as horrifying and unsettling. And I think, as we pointed out, you know, sport was originally meant to be an African-American character until Schrader and Scorsese were sat down by the studio and said, you can't do that. You can't have a finale where your white protagonist like explicitly kind of shoots a black man and rescues a white woman because that will lead to race riots. I think that Ash Clark's made the argument that that is actually like perhaps a bit of cowardice or restraint on the part of the film in that it, it allows and again you see this discussion come up quite regularly where everybody most people will accept that Travis is horribly horribly racist even though he never you know he uses occasional slurs um but you know he's like oh I let black people ride in the back of my cab anyway while not using the word black to describe them yeah. uh, using a slightly stronger word but you see things like you see people getting upset when you describe Travis Bickle as racist despite the fact that he transparently and and kind of is and a sense in which you know the film perhaps that restraint in making sport or casting Harvey Keitel as sport disguises uh, some of the implicit racism of kind of Bickle I think um, it's some of it's on purpose. It goes back yeah. to that like feeling from his perspective. Like yeah. that the scene where he's watching couples dance to me is is always it's 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 kind of it's a black man and a white it, woman. It's it exactly yeah. exactly, and you can see him there watching this alone in his apartment. You know, and it, it doesn't, as you say, even though he's not necessarily spouting you know racial epithets or, or sort of ranting about about race as minority, the way the film presents it is extremely kind of purposeful and yeah. and and that disturbing. white resentment, yeah. Exactly. And I think the problem with that is, you know, it's it's like so many Scorsese films. It's like idiot frat boat bros who watch The Wolf of Wall Street and then think the end is like, oh, yeah, brilliant. Now he's he's suckered all those people where like, no, guys, you're you're the audience like you're those guys going to that seminar. Um, but I think the problem with something like this, it's so much more disturbing, literally evidenced by the fact that people have, you know, taken this film as, as a coda for like, oh, I'm going to go shoot someone. Oh, I'm going to go do this. So I think that's the most disturbing part of this film is it's so effective in bringing you into his perspective that elements like its its treatment of race um, are, are even more disturbing because of that, because it doesn't need to sort of like 
do the screenplay thing of, oh, this character's a racist because he's saying racist things. It's going to be like, now look, look at how he's looking at that person. Look at how that person's looking at him, you know. I feel like there's an element of Travis that um, in the same way, I don't genuinely think he's attracted or emotionally interested by Betsy. He's he's a product of his environment. He thinks what he has to do is assimilate into society and become part of the world around him. But at the same time, it goes the other way when you see he doesn't ha necessarily have a point of view one way or the other at the start of the, the movie. And then as Scorsese sits in the back of his, his car, directs his gaze, then uses that word it you then start to see how it informs his point of view and how that yeah. makes him uh understand how to and, re and reconstruct him as a sense of avenger of someone who does have agency and someone who does have a purpose to when he is able to get a gun and he has that gun that the um that the scorsese character pointed out as well he kills the guy in the bodega and then he's looking at the he's looking at the the black person on the t on TV as well i think it's it's all almost feels like you're watching the birth of a racist of someone yeah. who really didn't quite actually have a point of view one way or the other but becomes a product of their environment by the hate that they absorb and then funnels that to a particular direction it, which in a way is an argument for why sport could and should have been a a um a black character because it's yes it's terrifying now seeing how the impact of that ending could have brought about that that uh, that that understanding of that ending but in a way it's about truly seeing the hate and where that goes when it's got nowhere else to to really stand when someone is absorbing all this hate and then needs the agency to put it somewhere it becomes these violent actions directed at women uh black people and literally anything that can give him a sense of purpose. Yeah. People who um, are getting I'm, what he feels he deserves, he you know he feels like he deserves. Sorry, Andrew. I'm quite I'm quite convinced by the 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 misogyny of the movie, but but like what when when it was when it was a decision to cast a black person was was that casting decision being made in order to say something about race or was it or or or, or was it just that it would, it would, like, like, and, and, and did they make the decision to cast Harvey Keitel in spite of that? No, like it was, they, Schrader wanted the, wanted the pimp to be black in order to underscore the kind of racist subtext. And again, you can argue that it ties back to the searcher in that, like, a large part of what the film is doing is deconstructing that kind of myth of the macho man going to a community that is different or he sees as lesser than him. And again, notable right. throughout, notable throughout yeah. the script that, like, Travis refers to the scum the animals that live in the city and without like necessarily directing that at black people although you see a lot of black children you see a lot of black faces presented in real close-up he shoots a black teenager shoots... in the back of the head halfway through the film as well yeah yeah, yeah that, that also the case but you have this kind of idea that yeah so i think that what schrader wanted to do was to make that kind of literal to make that literal connection because i think schrader right. himself has said he absolutely is a racist but the studio said there is no way that you could do that because if you do that there will be actual civil unrest as a result of but what that. what kind of a story did scorsese want to say because i i always thought of the 
the casting of Harvey Keitel as some way to kind of say, no, this isn't a movie about race. Okay. You know, that, yeah. that, 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 well, it, that, it was that it, like, it, it was that it very much was that, but it was, it was yeah, a decision yeah. that came from the studio and a trader. And I think Scorsese have both said in hindsight, they understand why that push came, why it came the way it was uh, and why they did it. And yeah. they think that, you know, Cause I, our... I think Schrader said it would have been immoral for them to put like lives at risk in that way of the reaction that there would have been to it. Um, right. right. I'm thinking about um, uh, I think I was watching one of those those trial by media episodes of the Subway Vigilante, the mm-hmm. guy that gets, sh- yeah, get, yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. That shot um four black teenagers in a subway and only a couple of years after this, yeah, only a couple of years after that, and how that then snowballed into the NRA leaping on that and kind of showing like, see, people do actually need to have guns and have the ability to own guns in in um. And concealed carries. Yeah, responsible gun ownership has been, and um, it's interesting to note that that obviously this is a few years after Taxi Driver, and it revolving around the issue of should people own guns and who should own them and what use should they be for, and the celebration that he gets at the end of being the taxi driver vigilante who saves the the young white girl from from a bunch of pimps. It's the you know, it's the kind of the NRA wet dream. It's the idea of like, yes, people should own guns because, you know, true Americans own guns and kill people. But the yeah. subtext of true Americans own guns and most likely shoot black people who they perceive as dangerous. I think it's worth pointing out, though, in that uh, Ashley Carter article, I don't, he's, he's not expli- explicitly critical of Scorsese's portrayal so much as it's the, it's, it's the, it, it's a it's a writer employee issue. I think he has that the characters don't get don't have agency in any yeah. part yeah. of it, and I think that's a fair criticism, to be honest. Like, yeah. uh, and I think it's worth exploring. And it he, he mentions a couple of other occasions in Scorsese's filmography, and it's it's it made me think about this films in slightly different ways. And I, like as I said, I don't think Scorsese's racist. I think Scorsese is probably a little afraid to get into certain yeah. conversations around this. And he's a little hesitant, and rightly so in a lot of ways, but. And he does produce a, films by black filmmakers. He, no, he does. And he, yeah. it, like, it's a complex area. And I don't think it's, it's simply to say one thing or nor the other. But I do think as a kind of critical analysis of his work, it's, I worth, think it's, reading. it's, it's, it's worth reading and worth yeah. getting into in that com- and the conversations around it. Yeah. Um, well, and actually, just when Regan when we, we mentioned all that stuff, I was actually thinking of the Ronald Reagan uh, advertisement, the Willie Horton ad very famously as well. Uh, which is part of kind of the ambient mood a couple of years later uh, as well. And again, notable in terms of the politics that it's very transparent that the the Palatine stuff that's happening is very much it's the Democratic Party in response to Nixon. That's it exactly. Well, it's, it's the but he's framed in such a way that he never mentions what political party he is. Although you imagine he probably has to be a Democrat. Well, that's that's kind of from Bremer's diaries apparently, who was like, yeah. "Oh, I'm going to kill you know the president," and then realized, "Oh, he's too hard to kill. I'll just kill his opponent." Like, there's no connection to policy yeah. or anything like that. There's just like, "Oh, I need to kill someone kind of famous." And going back to um to your point, Renard, about you know the power of this film and and kind of why I'm almost can see being on the studio side and sort of being like, "Okay, but like this film is already pretty dangerous. Let's like." try and tone down the actual body count this film might produce. I mean, when I went to that that horrible um, pistol range in New York on West 20th Street and, and met the guy, he's he's telling me, like, he's got posters of Taxi Driver up the plate. And he's, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, Bobby took this gun. They, him and Marty, they were down here. And there's this whole, like, 
you know, idea, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Jay, about this being a sort of college movie dorm poster. Um, and it, it it is still a very dangerous, very like irradiated film. And and for those reasons, I still can kind of see, yeah, like you do need to sort of maybe have a responsibility to turn down some aspects exactly. of it. Yeah, like the idea, the 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 one side seeing if you had have made that point with the ending and it following through on some of those those uh, on exact uh, those points of how Travis was absorbing hate and and affecting it in in that way at the end it's 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 really interesting however it's the danger of how many people are going to, to completely empathize with that and see that as an affirmation of their own hate is I mean some some idiots might go out there and make a film like Joker <laughs> yeah but it, it, yeah it it's very it's very empowering though because it kind of says like like you don't you don't have to you don't have to know much you don't have to understand politics um you don't have to understand culture yeah um, other people you, you, you don't Women have in to particular. Have taste. Yeah. or jokes yeah you, you yeah you you um like the the great thing about America is that, like, you can go out and shoot a president, or or, or you can, you know, a presidential um, candidate. Yeah, you can you can do something terrible and be. And, we haven't and talked fin- yet about finally um, be the great person that you've always. Well, I mean, kind of hope he to does. Be, he does you know? say that in his conversation with with Wizard, like when he's trying to articulate that wonderful conversation with Wizard, where neither of them can actually say what they're feeling. His lines are quite literally like, "I just, I, I really just, I." I want to do something, you know? I got some bad and ideas in my head. That's it. And it's like, what are your ideas? What are you going yeah. to do? I don't know. Just something, uh, which I kind the, of... Yeah, the, 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 it's, it, and it's, it's like a concern, actually, when, when somebody has those sorts of ideations and doesn't talk specifically about what those plans are. That's like the, the more... Because um, they found out which... Um, people like um like james holmes for example he had been like in um he had seen um kind of social workers and psychiatrists and had talked about like wanting to do something but they were never able to get any details of what that something was you know that that's um because if it he because there was like a tension of 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 kind of not wanting to do it, but also not wanting to reveal all of his plans because and that would because yeah. it, it would prevent him from doing it. I mean, right. do, do we think that's the case with Travis, or do we think at that point Travis hasn't figured out yet what he wants to do? I think it's a shame he doesn't listen to to <laughs> Wizard because go Wizard out there and get seems, laid. Yeah. yeah, and he also seems reasonably progressive. <laughs> oh, he does with his attitude <laughs> towards like, gay people. Um, they're, they're way ahead there in California. In California, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with yeah. their alimony. Um, do whatever you want, just not in the back seat of my cab. Um, I, I do think what's actually interesting there is that notion of celebrity that happens throughout as well, because you mentioned the idea of kind of shooting somebody becoming famous. You have like Doughboy's discussion of a piece of Earl Flynn's bathtub. And which is very much, and again, you have this idea of Palantine and Palantine being important, not because of anything that he actually believes or any of the causes that he represents. You know, what, which of Palantine's policies do you like? I, uh, I, I don't know. You know, you have I'm sure a, they're good policies. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Like you, you have things like even, even the campaign workers working on Palantine's staff. It's like, you know, sell the man, then the issues. Or it sounds like you're selling It's not we the people. And he goes out, he's like, abortions for all. <laughs> yeah. But it very much, 
yeah, it's very uh, much along the lines of, yeah, what's, what's the line? It's You sound like you're selling mouthwash. I am. But this idea that like in America in 1976, the idea of fame and value is so disconnected from any actual like purpose or point. Like even We scene- are the people rather than we are the people. Yeah. yeah. Also, isn't it, isn't it, 1976 was the bicentennial as well. Wasn't it? Yeah, it was indeed as well. Um, and kind of this, this, this sense of kind of just, even when Palatine's in the back of the cab and he's like, so Travis, you must have some issues that you feel strongly about. And it's like, no, maybe killing everybody, but no, not really. <laughs> and Palatine's response to that as well, it's a very complicated issue and it's going to require some radical change. So, uh, yeah. vote for me. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I think I understand what you're... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The idea of it being so vacuous and meaningless, um, which is quite striking as well. Do you know when when Palantine says, I learned more from people like you and Cabs than in any limo, it's like, I would never vote for a guy that (laughs) says that. It's such absolute empty bullshit. Leo Varadka would say that. Like, you know what I mean? Shut up. You've never taken a cab in your life. Anyway, sorry. The, The delivery guy... The delivery guy who delivers is Camille. Like, he he learns more from... Oh, yeah. He's taught him so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember a few years ago, actually, I was going to um, a Schrader Q&A, and I was actually getting a taxi there, and the guy was asking me what I was going to go see, and I told him the right taxi driver, and he's, like, never seen it. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Wow. The one film about my profession, damn it. Um, I do also love the idea that we're going to get a, an Irish version of Green Book about Leo Vradker and his... Vradker um, <laughs> <laughs> being an electric car. Um, yeah. <laughs> absolute nonsense. Yeah. Um, but actually, very, very quickly then, um, just I think we're kind of reaching the end. Uh, what I did think was kind of interesting, we talked a lot about Scorsese's second cameo, where he filled in for an actor who didn't show up on the day. Uh, what's interesting is his earlier cameo, where he's visible very briefly in the background as Betsy's yeah. introduced. Checking out Betsy as she walks by. That's the it. Male you, gaze. That's it. That's literally yeah. the male gaze. You have yeah. Scorsese's camera looking at Scorsese, looking at Betsy, as you know Travis is quite literally describing that Betsy is the most beautiful woman in the world, and therefore I must have her. Which is very much like a literalization of the movie's kind of themes. I think ties back to what Andrew was asking there about how self-aware Scorsese is and what he's doing. And I think that having him sitting on the stoop is maybe a little bit acknowledging that. And again, it's it's ironic that he wasn't meant to play the role of the passenger in the back seat yeah. because, as Renox pointed out, that that sequence is him directing Travis. Like literally, the camera is sitting in Travis's position and moving the camera, so we move with Travis's eyes as well, which I find striking. No, it's a seventy Scorsese is very terrifying in that cameo. Like it, that it looks kind of demonic. And, oh, in the back seat, in the yeah, and he's so small as well. But despite yeah, having yeah, that exactly. kind of. And the bit where he's like, oh, you don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell me. You don't have to talk. I'm not paying you to talk. I'm paying yeah. you to drive. Yeah. He has the Charlie Manson quality yes, he, to him, very doesn't he? So. Yeah. yeah. Buzzing eyes are just so... The, the the one feature that you remember of him is just the the whites of his eyes. And that way... Plenty of cocaine. Yeah. This is the point where... It's nice that Marty has grown up into being the kind of cuddly <laughs> man is. that he is now. Cuddly movie yeah. grandpa. Yeah, thank God, yeah, thank God for that. His, his Hugo cameo was originally much more intense. Um, yeah. But it, to be fair, I think as, as Jay pointed out, yeah, this was the point where Sandy Wintraub was describing waking up and finding vials of cocaine just lying around in the bedside locker um, to give you a sense of what Scorsese was doing. He had a, he had a, he had a, he had a big 70s. Uh, he had a, yeah. 
This is the point where when he was editing this, he was drinking champagne, Dom Perignon and Ludes in the editing bay, apparently, was how this was. The dream. <laughs> worked out. Yeah, it worked out great. Like, <laughs> Quaaludes. Drugs work, yeah. kids. Yeah. And, and Dom Perignon. No wonder you're in the film business, Rena. <laughs> <laughs> there was this really weird, like, effervescence to the 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 tone of the film where, you know, you do recall Taxi Driver as being you know, like the, the the incredible, harsh, gritty, um, insanely violent, insanely hard to swallow film. But then, you know, you kind of re- remember there are these really elegant moments in it, like when uh, dreamy, effervescent moments where Betsy comes out of this crowd and you get this flourish of the, the Bernard Herrmann theme that comes with that, the harp and just this like beauty of, um, of her and the majesty of that moment. Even scenes where Travis is walking through, he's sort of floating through people. And there's the kind of dreamlike quality of the, some of those choices compared to then the nighttime and this kind of nastiness is just what makes that really beautiful. Because I don't think you can swallow that film if it's if yeah, it's that kind of majesty and those those really, really elegant, beautiful flourishes of um of dreaminess and one, yeah, more, thing, one more thing actually because I, I actually made a point of researching this because i thought andrew would ask and i'm very disappointed that he didn't but the porn movie that he takes betsy to which is apparently not oh, oh, sorry hold on <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've also <laughs> researched this in inverted commas. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, the, 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 why, why? No, I, I assume I, that you might have questions as a lover. I have to protest lo- at this characterization. I, I um, thought you would have questions as a lover of cinema about that, that movie in question. But I, one of the I things... I love that, for oh. <laughs> Yeah. Um, one of the things that I find interesting... I don't, that's projection, Darren. The, what? The, <laughs> so, so, Darren, you were really um, interested in the porno. And I believe you want to talk about it. Um, go ahead. But one of the things that's interesting about it is that it is not, it's a very artsy uh, pornographic film, actually, as opposed to a very graphic one. And one of the That's the 70s, though. So. Yeah, well, that's it, because you had it's, the It open. looks like, like a Pasolini kind of, um, doesn't it? Yeah. Kind of, like, <laughs> um, uh, what's that kind of, um, is it 30, 30 Days of Gamora? Or Sodom, yeah. 30 Days of Sodom, yeah. 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 Or, yeah or whatever it's called yeah. yeah but the reason why that is is because apparently that was one of the big issues with the studio as well so they they said that you know he can go to porno theaters but you can't actually show that much pornography in the film itself so scorsese got around that by picking a deliberately artful or artsy uh, piece of pornography as opposed to a graphic one which is why um although i do like the fact that travis takes her to an upmarket kind of like artsy existential pornography it's like the kind of shelf. Well, actually there's the music in the film does suggest that Bernard Herrmann might have watched the porno before he died just to get the kind of <laughs> the uh, saxophone. I was kind of socks off saxophone. I can imagine watching Swedish porn at you know on a Saturday <laughs> night at age seventy something trying to get them get this, this music right. Uh, yeah, what he, an image. He, he did pass away the day after he yeah, did the final I recording, did. actually. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, Bernard, you you put too, too much work in, too much vigor um, in your work. Uh, it is a beautiful sorry, score. Sorry, yeah, I meant to, 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 to the estate of Bernard Herman. Yeah. We should acknowledge yeah. the score is fantastic. Just, it his is. family <laughs> know that he he died doing what he loved. Um, um, but the score uh, is actually fantastic. Oh, no. out there. It is actually yeah. a beautiful, beautiful score. That's and right. again, 
it's weird how the score is kind of old Hollywood because obviously you would have worked with Hitchcock and stuff like that. And while the movie is so kind of gritty and modern. But I think that about wraps it up unless there's anything else you want to talk about. Anything we haven't discussed already. Anything jumping out at people uh, with regards to Taxi Driver. One one quick thing just to mention uh, that we haven't mentioned so far, I thought we would, is um, The King of Comedy, which is kind of like the flip side of this, um, but kind of goes into quite a lot of um, what we were talking about, about the idea that in America, if you simply commit enough crimes, you will become successful. And I, I, I kind of prefer King of Comedy to this film because... There are just like moments that make me belly laugh in it in between all the weird taxi driver alienation themes that are also there. So for that reason, I always have always preferred taxi or king of comedy. But it's sort of an interesting, you know, the, the elements of it that are retained. And one of them is that idea of the ending and the sort of similar dream sequency, like guess it all worked out for the weird loner who decided to commit a bunch of crimes and, you know, so endeth the lesson. And I think that like ta- I think that it's harder to glamorize King of Comedy than it is to glamorize Taxi Driver. In that I feel like you know we haven't had a spate of famous people being kidnapped so that you can do a late night TV show, um, kind of crime speeds by incels after the release of King of Comedy, as opposed oh, to. I'd rather add the Wolf of Wall Street as an unofficial trilogy in that regard because the old yeah. tennis match in prison kind of way. Yeah. It? <laughs> it, it worked yeah, out great. Yeah. yeah. Well, most Scorsese movies, to be fair, I mean, That's even true. in Goodfellas, the worst thing is that he has to eat the tomato sauce out of a can. That is um, a crime, though, in fairness. That does sound bad, That sounds really bad, in fairness. I like my tomato sauce fresh, yeah. goddammit. The only other thing I was going to mention is I was reading um, Matthew Zoller Seitz's big book on Oliver Stone recently, and Oliver Stone's another filmmaker that, like, when I was twelve, I probably thought he was the bee's knees, and since that then, fell off a cliff, little... didn't it? Yeah, exactly. Once he kind Speaking of Speaking of things up. that have not aged well, um... but I, I am still kind of fascinated by him, and that's why I got that Me book. Too. It was on sale, and I like Matthew Zoller Seitz a lot. So uh, you know, it is a very interesting book, and I'd recommend it. But there's a great bit in it where he kind of like talks about this theory that maybe Travis Bickle was based on Oliver Stone because Oliver Stone was like in the film academy and Scorsese was teaching him and apparently wore that like combat, you know, jacket yeah. and and had similar vibe and everything and maybe worked as a taxi driver or something like there, there's a whole bunch of scary stuff anyway <laughs> that completely makes sense that Travis Bickle would go on to like direct savages and all those other things. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, like Oliver Stone obviously was in Vietnam as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and volunteered, I think. Yeah. I do love the idea of Travis Bickle traveling to Russia, actually. This fits far, far, far too comfortably. I think that oh. uh, yeah. <laughs> Schrader, and, uh, Schrader and Scorsese and De Niro actually talked about maybe making kind of a loose trilogy of uh, Bickle movies. And in fact, actually, he's I think Schrader's argued that American Gigolo and actually the other movie that Renuk mentioned, which is it Light Sleepers? Yeah, um, yeah Light Sleeper with the foe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're they're a loose trilogy that he those are yeah. the movies he kind of envisaged doing with Bickle over the years. Even first, funny, first Reformed a little bit as well. Yeah, first performed as a and, spiritual companion. Yeah. Uh, Mishima as well is a, is a kind of a like a real life Bickle story in a way. It was part of, that inspired him in part actually, um, and that's yeah. that's the example he cites when he talks about how in Japan you would commit suicide rather than in America you would you know kill a bunch of people. Yeah, but it's also this kind of militaristic kind of uh, obsession. There's a lot to do with kind of masculinity. Um, Oh, uh, uh, um, working out like kind of the the, the physical kind of um, culture of it. The 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 whole kind of the the culmination in violence kind yeah. of because it, it's like rising up a a kind of a private militia 
Um, as, also, the as, like cringiness of the Golden Pavilion story about the like young guy who can't really communicate and understand beauty and all these things. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Sorry, just when you mentioned the working out there, I do actually love how much the kind of like taxi driver demonstrates kind of the, the hypocrisy of Bickle, where he's like, from now on, there will be no polluting of my body. There will be no more booze, no more drugs, no more junk food. And almost immediately you see him like guzzling beer, downing pills and eating mayonnaise out of the jar. So I kind of love that like Bickle is an unreliable, un, you know, unreliable narrator. Even that's, uh, in that's my COVID diet right there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it goes. Yeah, yeah. It goes back to the idea he's an alien though, who doesn't understand food, like who doesn't understand how anything actually works, and is like you know cooking his own hand to feel pain and everything. Yeah, I can't decide if his pills are a good idea or a bad idea, because <laughs> he says no more pills, and you're like, oh no, and then <laughs> then he's taking the pills, and you're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, sorry, Rena. Oh, sorry. I always like that kind of demonic, demonic uh, shuffle of his head that he does. To yes. Like when it's take like a glass of water, just like just like check it down. <laughs> <laughs> like, who does that? An alien. Yeah, that's in the masculine way. Yeah, that's how men yeah. do it. Um, which TV show did you learn watching that? Um, is there food waste in this? I don't think there is food that much food waste. I think he eats most of the junk food that he buys, right? I think he does yeah you imagine there's probably some bad stuff in his fridge yeah. i mean there's there is um, in a there is inappropriate smoking in the sequence where jodie foster doesn't smoke a cigarette but just keeps it light in, lit in the room although that's far that's from correct. the worst thing yeah, happening yeah. in that sequence there's also the fantastic like fireworks when harvey could tell like flicks that cigarette at de niro and gets the like <laughs> oh, plume yeah. like that's it's perfect. so good yeah. yeah the the and i love that there's was, Oh, no, no. I was just going to say, like, the RoboCop stuff is very... <laughs> very, is, very, is very... Yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't have to kind of reach very, very much for it. It's kind of like in, in terms of there being, like, violent scenes that <laughs> yeah. studios want to remove. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, um, small little touch that I actually love uh, and I picked up watching for the second time. Oh, and a hand getting blown off. Yes, that's yeah. exactly what yeah. I was about to say. I love the sequence where Betsy is talking to Tom and she's like, how would you light... Um, match if you didn't have these fingers on your hand and it's like that's a very precise uh, question <laughs> to ask I wonder if this is going to come up in the third act of the film somehow it's like well that mobster check off fingers <laughs> yeah, uh... check... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if only that mobster it must be knew. removed in the third act <laughs> yeah that's a check off finger removal digit removal that's the company um... I gotta start check off <laughs> finger removal <laughs> we got but the again, fingers we got all the fingers think... Like we talked about how great Paul Schrader's script is in terms of character and narration, drive, and getting into the American psyche. Yeah. It's very good at setup and payoff. But that, without having like too much of a, you know, there is a shark in the town and we need to stop it. Kind of blunt overt narrative of, you know, the, it's it's the injection of so much dread of like the minute he thinks about getting a gun, the pace of the soundtrack becomes a lot more sped up. It just becomes yeah. ominous. Everything starts to just get yeah. closer. relentless. And just you know that that whatever direction this is going in, you've no idea where this is going. You've no expectation as an audience um, what how this film is going to end. You know, in screenwriting, you should always be hoping for something and fearing something else is going to happen. But the great dread of this film, watching it for the first time, is that you literally have no idea what's going to happen, but you know it's not going to be good. It's just the dread of something yeah. really dark sinking in. And I think that's the kind of dramatic tension that works so well when you're in control of your craft, is that you know, you don't, you know, even, I'm 
picking it because it's on my wall, but midsummer is is kind of similar. You don't really know what is going to happen, but you just know it's not going to be good. It's the master <laughs> of dread and tension just sinking in, and you're not able to escape from it. Is there ever? Is there any? I haven't seen Midsummer, but is there any of Midsummer where it feels like everything's going to be okay, like even <laughs> at the beginning? Like the, we've been invited if you were to, this to go in and not know other other movies that they had made. Yeah, yeah. Mean, without spoiling it, possibly the end of Midsummer. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> they, it's unbearably yeah. tense. It is unbearably yeah. tense. Because hey. I remember. <laughs> uh, I, I guarantee you that's not a spoiler in any way that Andrew could possibly perceive. All right, I think that that about wraps it up. But before we go, what we ask is we ask our guests to recommend something, something they enjoy. So Jay, what are you enjoying at the moment? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm not really going to move your idea, but I will. I said it on Twitter yesterday, but a worth recommending is uh, the book The Five by Haley Rubenholt uh, about the untold lives of Jack the Ripper's victims, uh, which I'm really liking at the moment. And it does kind of, connect a little bit with tax driver and that kind of uh, assumption of prostitution and all the rest of it that uh, particularly women's lives got at the time and this is a kind of reclamation of their lives and their agency uh, in a way and uh, it's a terrific read really really good um, I'm, and i'm absolutely speeding through it so i absolutely get that right and Renak, what would you recommend um, so I am absolutely loving Talking Sopranos podcast at the moment, and it's oh been, yes, as someone who's been going, who I I I've probably seen every episode of The Sopranos, and I kid you not, probably about seventy five plus times. Like <laughs> from the from it aired, there hasn't been a break in my <laughs> viewing of it. It's just something I just throw on and try to study, and the episodes where you just sort of absorb it because it's just your masterclass in acting and writing and directing and the simplicity of, you know, a TV show that created an entire universe and distilled it to something incredibly simple and relatable. Um, and just enjoying Stephen Strepa, uh, Michael Imperioli, uh, Bobby Bacalan and Christopher um, going through it episode by episode. And they're only on season two now. They've just been doing it during covid and having on guests like Terence Winter and uh, Lorraine Bracco and Edie Falco, and they're going to continue to have so many more, and just enjoying their perception of how they made it when they came to fame, what they were doing as working actors, um, you know, how scenes came about, just stories from the crew. I just find it really, really interesting. And just to get their actors' perspective on their characters. And um, it's just, it's like going, you know, even though you've seen it, a million times just going through those episodes and enjoying it from that perspective and and again finding out stories that you um and perspectives on scenes that you would never have put together it's it just it continues to be such a smart show for that reason and then Stephen Sharipa who um who has worked in Vegas as a promoter and he has these amazing stories of the people he's pissed off, of wise guys he knew. It's just a really great show to, to get involved with. Um, that, and I would say, because I've mentioned it so far, is, you know, I, I find it incredibly hard not to pair Taxi Driver with Kloot, which anyone who knows me is, you know, probably even more of a more influential film than Taxi Driver is to me because it it's it's one of these kind of forgotten classics 
And I think as a counterpoint to having a female character who is exhibiting, who is who's who has a perspective in this world, the fear that you feel as part of being this call girl that nobody really cares about and this murderer is, you know, creaking around outside your room. It's a really nice counterpoint to watch with Taxi Driver. Um, and every time I watch it, it's just there's something really dark and unsettling that just fits <laughs> neatly in that kind of lovely and settling feeling I like to feel when I watch cinema. So I think I'd, I'd pair those two together and, and compare. As a double feature? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and Alex, what about yourself? What would you recommend? Um, I, I would write if, if somebody has watched Taxi Driver again, uh, kind of similar to um, to what yourself was saying, Renuk, about like a companion piece. I'd recommend First Reformed, which is on uh, it's just on Netflix. I know a lot of people didn't love this film when it came out. I think, Darren, I ran into you soon after I saw it and and you were like, it was atrocious. And I was like, no, I thought it was great. <laughs> so um, I, I appreciate there like it is a sort of like like it or hate it film. But it's it's such a sort of cool similar kind of mediation meditation on the, the same themes as taxi driver just done in a, in a in a sort of such a distinctly schrader way it's like schrader's taxi driver in some ways and we were talking previously about like how scorsese in the 70s was this sort of like you know doing rails of coke and then like getting introspectful and, and putting that all on the screen and i think that's why he's such a good like they're both maniacs schrader and scorsese and, and having this overlap and having these incredible films together really does stand and I remember reading a few years ago that like they were talking about doing some sequel or follow up to Taxi Driver and Schrader did the script and then Scorsese and De Niro were both just like, no, that's terrible, <laughs> which, you know, completely checks out because, of course, you know, they would be terrible. But it, it kind of reminded me as well of like Spielberg hiring him to do Close Encounters and Schrader <laughs> turning in a script, which is like about a military man having a breakdown with no aliens <laughs> and everyone being like, do you understand what you have to do to make a studio film? But I think, sorry, to go back to First Reformed, it's just... um. It's it's wonderful, and I think it's such a perfect distillation of of a lot of the Schrader worldview into this very tight, very claustrophobic, very very similar film about God's lonely man, literally like a priest in this film, um, and a really surprisingly good Ethan Hawke film. Like I was kind of on the fence about Ethan Hawke for a long time, and then I watched this, and I remember he's so I good. I'm a big Ethan Hawke fan. I remember in the Q&A I went to around the time of seeing this, um, somebody asked him why he cast Ethan Hawke. And he said something like, Ethan Hawke looks like he used to be handsome. Like he, he looks like a <laughs> movie star that is like hollowed out. And I remember thinking like, that's a fantastic answer. But also like, this is why you don't have many friends and every now and again have to like <laughs> scrap together Kickstarter money to make a film. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. It's like that, that, yeah, that's, that's why he had... He, he made canyons exactly yeah, yeah, yeah exactly um, so yeah i would recommend if you're watching taxi driver and want to like continue the path down the the lonely you know incel route check out first reforms there's a, a great sequence that made me laugh because ethan hawk's literally driving a car i think past like neon signs and like voiceover and everything and it's like oh right i see what you're doing now <laughs> apparently schrader didn't realize how much of what he was doing until he got to the editing bay then he was that like, would be very again very very <laughs> schrader right. like yeah uh, and then Andrew, what would you recommend for listeners? Um, I some something that I thought that I thought of just there when we were talking about tension, um, um, which is a very different kind of a movie because for me it was a movie where it felt um, like it wasn't necessarily going to all go bad. Um, was uh, uh, Roma. Um, and I, 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 
I, I've been thinking about that movie and the tension in it. Um, cause, uh, like, it be, because because I, I, I guess when I was watching it, um, it felt like, oh, this is a kind of a quiet sort of slice of life movie. Um, um, and, um, but then it, it, um, the way, the, the way it kind of slowly, um, introduces dread, I thought was very sort of interesting. Um, so I'd recommend that. Um, in terms of other stuff, um, I, I do really like the mission, um, with, 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 with Robert De Niro is the, 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 um, Jesuits uh, in the Rome. jungle. Sorry. Jesuits, Jesuits, in, the, Jesuits in the jungle. Jes- yes, Jesuits in the jungle. Exactly. Um. So it's it's um, no, it's a it's it's an interesting movie. Um, and I suppose it it it, it will have some of the kind of other Scorsese themes around kind of um faith. Um. It's also a, it we 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 talked a bit about Bernard Herrmann, and of course you can't talk about the mission without uh, talking about music. So, and your Marconi uh, score, yeah. Yeah, and 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 I think um, I enjoyed um, I enjoyed Jeremy Irons a lot in it too. I uh, I, I um, get PTSD when I watch the mission because when I was twelve, um, I started learning to play the oboe. And oh, no. <laughs> 12 to 17 and there was not a funeral or wedding in the you know the Louth County district that did not have me wheeled in by my mom <laughs> to perform Gabriel's oboe so every time I hear Gabriel's oboe I'm like I get that kind of like oboe I not again Rena because God's lonely soldier literally yeah. there uh. <laughs> Gabriel's oboe do you yeah. God's loneliest oboist um, in terms of recommendations uh, yeah. In terms of recommendations for myself, uh, very quickly, um, done a bunch of research for this podcast, taking it relatively seriously this time around. So a couple of quick recommendations. Obviously, Easy Riders Raging, Raging Bulls, which is a huge source of background information from Peter Riskand. Uh, Scorsese on Scorsese, uh, which are conversations with Scorsese with uh, Ian Christie, which are very, very worth reading. And Conversations with Scorsese uh, by Richard Schickel. Those are kind of primary sources for this, this podcast season in terms of kind of like discussing the films. And there will be a lot of background information, and I apologize in advance for that. All right, then. So if people are looking for a bit more Renuk, a bit more Alex, a bit more Jason in their lives, where can they find you? So what are you up to, Renuk? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, um, or I-O-G-H-N-A-C-H-N-I-G, uh, RenukNiG on Twitter. Um, people in Canada can go and see my short film. I say go and see. You can go to your computer and watch it online. Uh, my short film when it premieres at well it, it, it premieres in North America at Fantasia Fest at the end of this month people in Helsinki can go physically to Night Visions Festival to see my short film it's called Break Us and it's going Finland's to- on the green list too <laughs> it is on the green list and I was saying to Jay earlier I, I, I was sorry I was saying to Darren earlier that uh, I uh, I was very tempted to physically go there, but I just can't justify no. to go to a, a festival in, 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 in Helsinki, even though I have loads of friends in Helsinki and it's fantastic. Can I? 
can't really. Yeah, I mean, I mean, how, uh, Finn, what would, Finland. What would Travis Pickle do? I think is the. <laughs> Finn, bring your oval. It'll be, it'll be grand. Like you know, both the Helsinki. And there's a story that I, 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 I was an oboist in Helsinki when I was 12. So this is all very tying into my PTSD. I'm going to be very triggered by it. All mingled together. Um, but yeah, Finland's so... very sparse as well. Like if you want to social distance anywhere in <laughs> Europe, like Finland, Finland's a pretty good choice. It's all like, you know, there's, there's only no population. activities in, in Finland. It's just, just like there's open air, everything there. So yeah, yeah it's a cold place. It's just everything is outside. I mean, I mean, we could do it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to go back and justify it to, you know, uh, I, I, I think the, the, there will be a time for travel. It's just not in the next few weeks. No, no. No. But it is available online in Canada as part of Fantasia Fest. And if you are in Helsinki, you can see it there as well. And congratulations, Rina, actually. This is great. Thank you. Um, and Alex, what about yourself? Where can we find you? Um, we are still doing podcasts over at When Irish Eyes Are Watching, where we kind of watch films that have some element of Irishness in them and talk about it. Uh, we are not as productive as you guys at the 250. I think we're on like two or three episodes a year and you guys have done like 30 or something. So um, I do. We will be doing more uh, in the coming weeks and everything. Don't. One, what time? <laughs> what, what? It's, it's terrible. <laughs> don't, don't, don't use no, yeah, we, say. We've settled <laughs> into I remember when like I started it, we were like doing... You you know, I was like, oh, yeah, we have to do at least one a week. And now it's like one maybe every two, three months. Um, <laughs> but it's it's grand. It's I've, the two co-hosts and everyone. We were kind of harder to organize in coronavirus because we all have to remote in and find times. But we are, I think, doing Ronan next, which um, is similar in that it also has De Niro shooting people. And it's got a very tenuous Irish connection, but also an excuse to just watch Ronan again. It's great. And I think that when you will be on in a couple of months, Alex, you certainly will have a new, fresh recommendation for what you guys will be covering. Undoubtedly, I expect. Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, cool. And Jay, where can we find you? What do you have to add? Um, I'm at Jay Coyle on Twitter. And I will also second the recommendation of Breakless because I saw Elfla last year. And it's great. Ooh. All right, perfect. All right, then we'll be back next week. I will be continuing our season of Scorsese. Andrew and Jay will be back as usual. We'll be joined by the fantastic Grace Duffy for that conversation. Uh, until then... Thank you so much for joining us, Rinok and Alex. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Thank you so much, Bye. everyone. <laughs>